I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome to a new week with the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, no lover of uh, fractional reserve money bionic. Okay. <laughs> and one who can barely remember his middle name. <laughs> or, or, could be impro- or could be improvising his middle name. Uh, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to be back with you for another week with the Future Quake Show. We have another tremendous guest with us this week. Indeed. We've been on a roll, I think. Man, I'll tell you, this is a guy that I've wanted to have on pretty much since like the third or fourth time you asked me to start doing a show. Yeah, regularly. you're kidding. That's like thousands of years ago. I know, like back in back before the Federal Reserve was even... Really? I'm even, glad he's still alive. Yeah, well... You know, I thought about having J.P. Morgan on, but just never got around to it. Well, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't yeah. know how you're going to do that. But we got the next best thing. We have G. Edward Griffin. Indeed. Who is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island. Yes. A legendary book, if there ever was one. Uh, you know... If there was ever a guest that was destined for the Future Quake show, it would be this gentleman. I'll tell you, and I would recommend it to all of our Futurians to go to... Um, well, I'll tell you what. Go to futurequakeradio.blogspot.com. Um, and you You're can, doing a shameless plug, aren't you, for I, your I blog am, that you write? I, I am. I'm doing that. Well, you can go there, and there'll be a um, there'll be a link there to a video to to watch if you want some more information after oh. you're done hearing this. Uh, I'm okay. gonna I'm gonna put up a little little thing. So you're part of our multimedia experience Indeed. in future quest. Yes, a little a little blog and maybe a little blurb about the stuff that he did. So we're not just kings of the audio medium. We're taking it all on. Well, with uh, our audio interview uh, this week, we're going to talk with Mr. Griffin about the Federal Reserve, smoking gun evidence of a banker-run world. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not as cheery and upbeat as our typical shows. He's he's a guy. I can't wait to really get in and do this interview, man. Well, he's an inspirational gentleman, a, a very fine gentleman. Emphasis on the word gentleman. Yeah. And a classy guy, and I think everybody's going to really love him. Uh, Some of you may have heard him uh, at different places or venues, Mm -hmm. and you probably wanted to hear him here. And so we have our own unique Future Quake style of uh, having our discussion Mm -hmm. about the banker-run world and what we can do about it. So Mm -hmm. with no further ado, here is Mr. G. Edward Griffin, again, the author of Creature from Jekyll Island. And then when we come back, we'll uh, wrap up that discussion of this segment on Future Quake. Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And we're here with uh, a gentleman that we have wanted on our show, given we're now started our fifth year on the air. Mm-hmm. We have wanted for a good part of that time. And, Indeed. And finally just uh, took the initiative. And, and It uh, is a red-letter day. We've won the lottery. Um, this this yeah. gentleman has uh, made time and his extremely busy schedule to be with us. And it's a real honor to introduce to our Future Quake listeners Mr. G. Edward Griffin, the author of numerous books, including The Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah. Uh, and we're, today we're going to talk about the Federal Reserve and smoking gun evidence of a banker-run world. And, uh, Mr. Griffin, I tell you, it's just a pleasure to have you on our show today. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for inviting me. 
you're you're someone who not, not only has exposed information mm-hmm. that has been critical, but but you've actually uh, been a leader in putting plans of action to deal with it. And we're going to try to discuss all of that today. But uh, of of all of the very very important work that you've done uh, yeah, relating to our world systems, our financial systems, even cancer research, a, a number of areas that you've addressed. Uh, one book that always comes to mind with people was The Creature from Jekyll Island, mm-hmm. which was a, a, a world-changing piece of literature uh, that from everyone I've spoken to that's read it, uh, uh, any reader who's read it has never looked at the world the same way since yeah. reading it, which is the highest compliment I think I could uh, give to an author. Uh, but Before we, we discuss this uh, cataclysmic work in uh, detail, uh, could you share with our listeners, many of which may not be familiar with you, uh, Mr. Griffin, uh, a brief synopsis of your career and your published work? Oh, okay. Well, that's probably the least important or the least interesting <laughs> part of it. But anyway, uh, just to set the record straight, um, uh, I'm, I'm a graduate of the University of Michigan many, many moons ago um, in the class of 1953. And um, I went to school to have a good time. I was an okay student, uh, but I, you know, I, I went into speech and communications, which I thought was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I uh, studied, um, you know, the usual mix of uh, psychology and history, a little bit of science, and uh, I studied girls a lot, and um, <laughs> pretty much flunked that course. But anyway, uh, uh, the reason I say all that is that I have no special background for what eventually happened, expect, except that I did intend to go into the field of uh, film production as a logical consequence of my work in school. And um, But anyway, a series of events led me to where I am. I, I'm basically, I evolved into the field of being a writer. Um, I started to give some speeches back in uh, the early 1960s on topics which were of great uh, concern to me. I was one of the early critics of the United Nations um, back in the days when it wasn't very popular to be critical of the UN because in those days uh, we were all imbued with the thought that the UN was... Uh, our last best hope for peace. It was a, a, a chance for all the nations of the world to come together in a brotherhood of nations and to exchange cultures and do things in peace and improve our um, economic, all of the things that we were taught in school. And, uh, and I ran into some information almost by accident. It was published by a college professor in a, in a little booklet, which basically he was saying that all of these things that we were saying were really not true, that actually the opposite was the truth. Uh, Mr. Griffin, uh, when was that? That was about, when I was reading that information, that was about 1960, about 19, yeah, 1960. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because when I've read summaries and heard you talk, I know you had a stint in the military up to, I don't know, around 56, something like that. Yes. Military, mm-hmm. and then I know it seems like you really came to the forefront with a lot of your, your, your productions around mid early mid 60s like 64 62 64 yeah, exactly. during, during that intervening period of time what was happening in your life that that but when that I came out of the service uh, when I came out of the service I went to uh, to Hollywood uh, I had uh, met Raymond Burr when I was in the service I was in charge of bringing in um, uh, USO tours to the military base there now in El Paso Texas Fort Bliss Texas and I I met Raymond Burr. He was part of a USO program, and we got to be kind of friendly there in a few days. And he said, well, when you come out out of the service, uh, come out to Hollywood. Maybe I can introduce you to some important people. So I thought, boy, here's you know, here's a real good chance. So when I did get discharged from the service, I jumped in the car, and I beelined right out there to Hollywood and called Ray Burr on the phone and 
I said, hi, Ray, this is Ed Griffin. And he said, who? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here, here, you thought he'd be your best man. Yeah, I thought he'd be my best guy. So he hardly remembered we did have lunch. And that was about it. So anyway, I was in Hollywood, and I was I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm on my own. And I spent about, a, oh, I don't know, maybe nine months there. I spent a lot of time trying to get into one of the studios, into the networks or whatever. I spent all my money, and uh, uh, by this time I already had uh, a baby, and there was another one on the way, and I was running out of money, so I decided I'd better get a job, <laughs> a mm. J-O-B. Mm-hmm. And I hate so, those things. Yeah, my <laughs> life changed. And none of this is interesting or important, but I, I'll quicken it. So I got a job with an insurance company. I, I became what they call a, a junior executive. I was doing underwriting, providing assistance programs to some of the agents out in the field. And I, I did pretty well with a large insurance company for about five years. I was moving up the ranks. I thought, boy, this is pretty good. I'm going to be a, a, a big executive one of these days in New York. And then I started to run in some of this material we're talking about. I became very concerned with the world events. I became concerned about the future of, of my family and my country. And, and I did one of the dumbest things you could possibly imagine, and my wife would certainly confirm that. I quit my job, and I went off on my own wow. to give speeches and try and become a, oh, a kind of a rabble-rouser, you know. So uh, then that led to the writing of my first book, which was published in 1964, which was called The Fearful Master, A Second Look at the United Nations. And from there, it was just sort of downhill all the way. I was taking on all of the big, uh, all of the big icons. The United Nations, I did a critical work on the uh, Supreme Court and uh, so on. That led me, finally, I did something very critical in the field of health and nutrition. It had to do with the cancer industry. I called that book World Without Cancer, the story of vitamin B17. And finally, that led me to the monetary field. Well, that didn't lead me to it, but my, I was led to it. And um, then I wrote The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve System, which was published in 1994, with a lot of documentaries, you know, films and, and radio programs in the middle. But for the most part, gentlemen, I've always been kind of an upstream person. Uh, I've tried to write about things that I thought were important, to not just to me, but uh, to the community and to the nation, mm-hmm. if will, to the world, and also things which were uh, not being said. There was no point in just jumping on the bandwagon if everybody else was saying the same thing. So consequently, I've been pretty upstream throughout mm-hmm. all of my career. Well, you're in the right to school of fish then, because you're with a school of other fish here who are going upstream. We like to zig when the other fish In tag. several places, and that's a common hallmark of our guests here, whether we have William Grigg or Chris Pinto or uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Stan, yeah. uh, other people, and uh, it's just a pleasure to have you on, and I'm so thankful uh, that the Lord has provided men like you that are willing to bravely speak out on what mm-hmm. you believe is right and inform people and, and warn them. Uh, since the publication of, of that critical book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, what have you observed to be the impact in society in terms of feedback that you've heard or ramifications you've heard about or seen reported? Well, um, there are two aspects to that. That's an interesting question because, you know, the old joke is there's some good news and some bad news. Um, the um, The bad news is that when I wrote the book, and it was published in 1994, I would venture to say there was about a point zero 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 percent awareness among the American people 
of the Federal Reserve, how it functioned, what it did. Nobody cared. It was just something that was out there. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that the, you know the government took care of it, and nobody was interested in it. And uh, I think that my book, uh, being the upstream type of thing it is, had a lot to do with awakening many people. It, first of all, it was a surprisingly high seller. It was what, by any standard, what you might call a bestseller. Many of the bestsellers on the New York list, New York bestseller list, will sell only three to 5,000 copies, whereas my book on the Federal Reserve has sold a quarter of a million copies. Holy and, cow. Um, yeah, and so it's a bestseller, even though you don't hear about it as being on the New York Times bestseller list. It is far in excess of that. So a lot uh, of do you find a lot of them in the bank lobbies and places like that? Do they, <laughs> do they give complimentary copies when you open a new account? Well, I can tell you we have sold uh, numerous copies to banks. I never forget the day when the gal came into my office and said, guess who we just got an order for? And I said, who? From? She said, the Federal Reserve System. <laughs> So I know they have a couple of copies of my book in their library. Wow. But the point is that uh, in, in addition to that, I have given a lot of uh, uh, presentations, live presentations. Those have been recorded. And we have um, a CD, which is a synopsis of the story. And that CD, I'm sure, has been heard by at least two or three million people. So mm. the reason I say that, now we're coming to the good news which is by the time this banking crisis hit a few months ago, it was amazing to me how many people out there already knew what the problem was. They said, the Federal Reserve System has got to go. The Federal mm-hmm. Reserve System is the problem. Well, I can tell you a few years prior to that, nobody would have even looked at the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. So the good news is that the word is getting out and the level of enlightenment is considerably higher than it was Uh, when the book was first published. Now, I don't claim that the book was the sole responsibility for that. I think a lot of the responsibility uh, was because of the uh, presidential campaign of Ron Paul, who brought the issue of the Federal Reserve System into the consciousness of a lot of his supporters. So uh, a lot of things have been working in favor of it. Well, one thing I can say is that if I meet someone to talk about the kind of issues we talk about on our show, if I find out that they have read The Creature from Jekyll Island, they are 85 to 90 percent of the way there of understanding the things that we talk about on our show. Uh, Most of the things fall into place. And one of the things that uh, we'll, we'll refresh this at the end of the interview, but basically what you'll learn from this is that events that happen in world history are not by accident. They, people just don't go along haphazardly in, in our leadership and things happen and they react to them. Uh, they are carefully orchestrated. And those of us who are people of faith uh, have additional reason to believe that when we study our Bible and realize the forces who are at play uh, controlling these things. Uh, even, even those that are not part of the household of faith, uh, once they're educated, they can even see that as well. But that's what we're going to want to focus on our discussion. So I want to dive into the content. And the central thesis of your book revolves around a, a critical meeting that was held, I believe, in 1910. Uh, that's right. Amongst uh, bankers and other central figures uh, secretly on Jekyll Island, Georgia, uh, I believe. Uh, and I know we're not going to be able to talk about a lot of the content of your book because I want our listeners to get your book, to digest all of it. It is a real page-turner. They'll want to get extra copies to go to their friends as well and family members. But to give them just a brief uh, synopsis, can you share with us about uh, how this meeting came about, what was the agenda and, and the outcome from it? 
Well, yes, it's a curious fact, isn't it, that a, uh, an institution as important as the Federal Reserve System, which is the group that creates the nation's money supply and creates the credit uh, for the nation, a very important uh, fulcrum of power. It's interesting that this institution was actually created not in Washington, D.C. It was not created by uh, legislators or their assistants uh, or professionals who were hired for the job. It was created at a highly secret meeting on the, on the uh, island, Jekyll Island, off the coast of Georgia in 1910. And in that period of time, that island was privately owned uh, by a small group of billionaires from New York, people like J.P. Morgan and William Rockefeller and their um, business associates. It's where their families had built uh, very uh, exotic cottages, they called them, their mansions, and there were summer, um, rather their winter mansions is where they went to spend the winter months in the, in the warmer climates of Georgia. It was a privately owned island, and they had a beautiful clubhouse there. It still stands. You can visit it. And it was in the privacy of that island in that clubhouse that seven men went and spent a week, and they hammered together all the details of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System, which was passed into law three years later. Now, the significance of the secrecy, and when I discovered that there was a tremendous amount of secrecy around this meeting, I mean, these men denied that they ever went to the meeting uh, for quite a while afterwards. It wasn't until the Federal Reserve uh, finally accepted and revered as a great American institution that they came forth and said, oh, yes, well, we did go to this meeting, and we discussed this, and we did that, and so forth. And now, today, years later, all, uh, most of these guys have written about their uh, experiences. Their biographers have reconstructed the event. Their children have written about it. And historians have examined it. And so now you can go to any well-stocked library and you can find the documents that uh, provide oh, a great deal of minute detail about the meeting. But at the time, they denied that it ever took place. Now, the reason for that is very significant because it affects our lives today. The Federal Reserve System was offered to the American people as a piece of legislation that was to... Uh, this was a phrase that they used in those days. It was to break the grip of the money trust. That was a slogan back in 1910 through 1913 mm. because the American people were very concerned about the concentration of economic power in the hands of a few very large uh, Wall Street firms. And they knew that these uh, insurance companies and these banks were astride the nation's uh, economy. And they wanted legislation to take the power away from these private bankers and put it in the hands, they thought, of the people through their elected representatives. That was the purpose of the Federal Reserve Act, to control the money trust. Well, now, let's get right to it. When you look at the seven men who went to this meeting and the seven men who created the Federal Reserve System to control the money trust, they were the money trust. These men were representatives of the largest financial institutions, not only in the United States, but of the world. Now, this and sounds a lot like the Hegelian dialectic, where they, they've created some thesis and they're going to provide an antithesis and then create some synthesis. Is that some derivative of that? Well, I would say it is a derivative, but it was even a little more refined than that. What they really did is these fellows said to themselves, look, the public is getting concerned about our power. They're clamoring for legislation to control our power. So what do we do? Sit back and wait 
for somebody to do that, or do we ourselves take the initiative? Do we provide our own opposition? Let us provide the legislation to control our power and make the public think that it was it was genuine. So it wasn't really Hagley, and it was just controlled opposition. Mm-hmm. And it's a ploy that's been used many, many times in politics over the decades. Mm. And it was certainly done with great precision there. So the reason for the secrecy is, and, and one of the men, uh, Frank Vanderlip was his name, later wrote about it in the uh, Saturday Evening Post, and he said, and this is almost an exact quote, he said, if it were known at the time the names of those of us who drafted the Federal Reserve Act, it would have had no chance of passage through Congress. So, wow. well, if if well, le- le- leading on to that, you know, once they had their meeting and came up with their scheme, um, then it had to to run through the halls of Congress, um, had to get somehow through through there to make it official. How did that come about? How how did this lead to the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, and and then what was the outcome in the near and short term? Well, it was done very uh, with great cleverness, and but first, I think we should nail down what it is that was okay. passed. Mm-hmm. Um, what did they create? Um, many people still think that the Federal Reserve System is a government agency. It is not. It has the appearance of a government agency. It has the power of government behind it because it was passed into law. So, in other words, its provisions now are enforceable by the police. But what was created there on Jekyll Island was nothing other than a cartel. It's no different than a banana cartel or an oil cartel or a sugar cartel. happens to be a banking cartel made up of the largest banks who came together and said, okay, we are going to create an agreement to control our own industry. We will set prices, we will set interest rates, we will set policies, and we will tell the American people that we're doing this not for us, but for them. We're doing this to break the grip of the money trust. So they took their cartel agreement and they wrote it in the form of legislation and then the dumb, dumb congressman came along and said, ah, this is going to control the money trust. So they voted it into law, and now the government was in a position to enforce the cartel agreement. Now, wasn't now, this all... done right before Christmas time? Yes, it was. In fact, mm-hmm. it was. Uh, most of the uh, congressmen and senators had already gone home for Christmas. But I don't think that's terribly significant, except to the extent that it closed off debate. But most of the... Um, congressmen had already gone on record as saying they uh, they supported the Federal Reserve Act. So we don't have a good excuse. We can't make a good excuse for uh, their terrible decision they made. They just did a regular boneheaded congressional vote. Yes, right. <laughs> as they're known for. Their reputation yeah. is. We're back here at Future Quake Central with Dr. Future. And Tom, not a friend to big money bionic. <laughs> They're not a friend to short middle names. <laughs> Sorry. Well, that was our first installment of our interview with G. Edward Griffin. Wow. Uh, talking about the Federal Reserve and the aftermath. And we've just got started this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he shared with us a little bit about his background <laughs> and what, what a unique background to get into talking about this very issue. You know what I wonder is why all of these other people who were intimately familiar with the Federal Reserve and all these other backgrounds – never had the guts to write and expose what was going on. And it took a gentleman like him from the broadcast field, mm-hmm. from from other completely different areas to say, you know, this story needs to get out to the people. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I had a friend of mine who uh, installs uh, electronic components, and he actually got asked, of all things, to install some stuff in the office, uh, one of the major executive offices at one of the Federal Reserve branches. 
Uh-huh. And he walked in there. You know, he'd been talking to me. He told me he was going to do this. He walked yeah. in, and uh, I said, "Ask him if they ask him if they know that it's like a private bank." And uh, so I went in there, and he's installing stuff, and you know, talking with the people mm-hmm. there. And he said, "Do you guys? So I heard you guys are really like a private bank." You know, and you're you don't work on the best interest of the people. Said, well, I don't know about that last part, but uh, yeah, we try to not let it out that we're a private, completely private entity. Huh. We're, we're not. We're you know we're not a government entity at all. So even the even interesting the pe- even the people that know it. Your own personal yeah. anecdotes are fascinating. Well, there yes. you go. Well, I wonder if you can even get over there to Jekyll Island if they actually have anything that commemorates those meetings. I believe they actually it. have a museum. Do they really yeah, they for the Federal little, Reserve? Little museum, yeah. It's Do they uh, have like little Molec dolls and things like well, that? Well, it features a picture of J.P. Morgan Mammon, standing, I guess. kind of like like you know, just yeah. down Plymouth Rock with his foot on the neck of um, the American taxpayer. Humanity, yeah. yeah. Humanity. Yeah, I would think the god <laughs> Mammon would have been the god they would have yeah. worshipped there. I've always wondered if there's some sort of. I have to talk to David Flynn if there's some sort of maybe connection between the Georgia Guidestones yeah. and Jekyll Island. I don't know. I'm sure he's got some numbers. Some statutory miles. It's probably miles like 1,913 miles yeah, from it or something 19, like that. Yeah, there you go. Or 1,910, yeah. one of the yeah, two. There you go. From there in Washington, D.C. Six, 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 I don't know. Maybe that's how far <laughs> from Washington, you know. Yeah, well. I don't think it's that far. Maybe in kilometers or some yeah, dimension like of cubits. Inches, I don't know. Yeah, sacred Jewish <laughs> inch. Well, we've come up to the end. We've jawed away our time. Uh, he just got into the discussion about the Federal Reserve Act mm-hmm. and... Um, our our country was never the same since then. No. And you have to read his book to find out. I highly recommend that all of our listeners read his book. The whole struggle with the banks and mm-hmm. how few people like Andrew Jackson and other Jefferson fought it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like I fought the banks and the banks won. So I like that song. <laughs> I fought the banks and the banks, banks won. won. Yeah, and that's probably true for most of our Futurians out there. Unfortunately so. Well, someone we don't have to fight is Merv. Uh, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how they can contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it. Oh, wow. Come back tomorrow for installment two with G. Edward Griffin. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake. We are back for the Tuesday edition of the Future Quake Show with your friend, Dr. Future. And hopefully your friend, Tom Bionic. No middle name today. No middle name for this this segment. Well, what you may be lacking in a middle name from our co-host, you'll be gaining with a great author and guest today, G. Mm -hmm. Edward Griffin, the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, is going to be talking in our second installment of our interview, talking about Mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve, smoking gun evidence of a banker-run world. Yeah. Now, just to kind of bring all of you listeners up to speed, yesterday we did, uh, we talked and we kind of got into the background of his stuff. You know, the, hit, yeah. the history of what he was doing. Uh, interestingly, he was an early critic of the U.N. Yes. 
surprised. He was a very brave man. He was yeah. one of the first people to come out and say what's going on. Now, now you got Johnny Come Lately so mm -hmm. jumping on. And yeah, he wrote a couple books, too. Uh, the Fearful Master, a second look at the Yale. That's a UN. cool name. Yeah. And I guess he, according to him, he wrote a book called World Without Cancer, which is a history of vitamin B17. Uh-huh. Right. So. Which those bombers were very useful over World War II. Boom. Right. Who cares if you don't have cancer? Boeing. You're dead. Explosion. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but also, he, he uh, really got it in, into our discussion in the interview about the historic meeting on Jekyll Island mm -hmm. with the top financiers like J.P. Morgan mm -hmm. and others to create this uh, cartel of banks mm -hmm. that took over our money supply. Basically, would create money out of thin air and then charge us interest for us mm -hmm. in, in, as a basic. Kind of a form of slavery, you might say. And continue to this day. Yeah. And, and people are nary aware. And our dear friends in Congress, I know this may shock many of you, didn't have the, the best wisdom uh, when they went this approach. Either they no. were bought off. No. But uh, they turned us over to these uh, tyrants. They, uh, they appeared to be awfully incompetent. It's true. Yeah. Well, thank goodness they're so much better today. They would They've never call for on a the shell ball. game from bankers. Here we go. Yep. Yeah. We need this bailout to yeah. save the stock market. and then So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Indeed, sir. Well, Indeed. we're going to find out some more details, though, about the evolution of banking in our modern history, how it controls our daily lives, and uh, what are some of the legacy that we're under today. So with no further ado, we're going to cut away to G. Edward Griffin with our second installment of our interview on Future Quake, and then we'll be right back to wrap it up. Now, I understand Wilson has a famous quote uh, even though he was sort of very supportive of this, afterwards he suddenly realized the significance of it. Did he not? Mm -hmm. Which which quote? My, my understand that he he, he said something. In fact, I'm, I'm a most unhappy man. I, uh, I have, oh, Wilson. I, yes. Oh, Wilson. Yes. Wilson. Yes. 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 Uh, he he had some remorse there, but Wilson, I think, at the end of his life, uh, had a lot of remorse, not only about the banking bill, but about World War One, mm -hmm. and because uh, he knew. He knew that he was manipulating the United States into a war that they didn't need to get into and, you know, making it look like the United States was the victim because that was the only way they could sell the war to mm -hmm. the American people. And that's another very interesting piece of the history. But anyway, yeah, Wilson had a lot of remorse. And I think William Jennings Bryan had a lot of remorse. A lot of those got caught up in this thing at the end of their lives, um, almost uh, went out of their minds and um, their biographers and their widows, you know, wrote a lot about it. But you don't hear much of that. In school mm. And that's how significant these decisions were made at that period of time in 1913. If our people can understand that, and our elected officials have never learned that lesson. Either they don't read their history books or they've been bought and paid for by people who don't want this brought up. But they make the same mistakes, including this week. Uh, this is so relevant. These same decisions yeah. are being made for their behalf mm -hmm. by wealthy banker interest. Probably the most activity by bankers overtly since 1913. Is it not what we see going on today? Well, yes. And we must remember that when they held that meeting on Jekyll Island, they talked about the advantages of forming this cartel and going into a partnership with the government. And one of the uh, advantages was that they knew that the system had uh, huge holes and weaknesses in it. They knew that eventually it would collapse. And so they discussed how can we pass on these losses to the taxpayer in the name of making it look like we were protecting the nation. They discussed that. 
that was part of the plan. And they did that several times uh, throughout history since it was formed. And, of course, now this is the big granddaddy of them all when just about every financial institution and large corporation and media center is, is, is in trouble. And they're passing the cost on to the taxpayer, making it look as though it's in the interest of the nation. Mm-hmm. So now, uh, if I understand it then, about 1913, our nation and its citizens were basically conquered by the banking cartel, much like a foreign country would come in and conquer it. And from that time, we've paid tribute to that banking cartel. And, and the people who were the uh, the people who let the Trojan horse in were our own politicians and officials, who, who were in cahoots with these people. That they, 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 they let the enemy in, and now we we have paid since then dearly. We've lost control of our our lands, our currency, the wealth of our nation, and we regularly pay tribute to these people who at the same, tell, same time tell us there are benevolent dictators. Well, I think that's a good summary, actually. It's probably a little harsh for the uh, average person to hear, but uh, once you've gone through the history uh, nit by nit, I think you've come out to that conclusion. And, but the only, the only caveat one would make is that we were conquered, but not by an enemy from across the sea. We were conquered by a, a small group of people who were our own citizens, who were Americans, although even in some cases you could question that. I mean, J.P. Morgan, for example, was more British than American. He spent six months out of every year in London. He was raised in British schools, and you know, mm-hmm. his father was brought into banking in London and so forth. But nevertheless, he was an American citizen, and all of these other guys, the Rockefellers and and uh, this. A lot of these bankers, and some of them came from Europe, but they were American citizens now. And, uh, of course, the guys in Washington today are reaping this great uh, benefit of the legal plunder. They're American citizens. So uh, you're correct that we were conquered, but we were conquered by a small group of uh, politically favored people who carry American citizenship, which is very hard for the average guy to understand. How can you be conquered by your own people? And, and, however, they did receive their 30 pieces of silver and continue to receive it and were so kind as to actually kiss us on the cheek at the same time that they handed <laughs> us over uh, at this particular time. Um, you know, we, we can't talk Jeez. about the whole history of banking um, because you, you very methodically in your book explain or become self-evident to any reader uh, how, how it is crescendoed in, in the general mindset of the, the modern banking world and the way that they've found by means to exploit the entire world. Uh, but just to talk about some of the isolated principles that you bring up through your narrative, can you explain uh, a commonly unknown fact of how inflation serves as a hidden tax on the people? Yes, that's a very important uh, concept. And in fact, that is the concept that first got me interested in the Federal Reserve System. Years ago, I had decided I wanted to produce a, a documentary film on inflation. And I started to do research. And, of course, that leads directly to the engine of inflation, which is the Federal Reserve System. I never did produce the film. I started the research. And it was from there that I went on and finally came to this book. Uh, Inflation is a very simple thing. Um, But before I describe inflation, it might be important, I think, to make it comprehensible to know how money comes into existence. Uh, In the short explanation, I must say that uh, your listeners should know that money today 
just comes out of uh, out of the thin air. It's created by the Federal Reserve System and by the banks based upon debts, IOUs. Let's take it from the government side. When the government wants to borrow money from the Federal Reserve System, they go in there and they say, okay, give us a billion dollars, please. And the Federal Reserve gives them a billion dollars, and, and let's say they put it in a check form or, or uh, credit it to their uh, account somewhere through the um, computer system. And the government then can write checks on that deposit. And you might say, well, where did the Federal Reserve get this billion dollars to loan to the federal government? And the answer is it, it, the Federal Reserve didn't have that any money at all. It just created this money out of thin air and then went through the motions of loaning it to the government. And in other words, it's the same thing as if the government just turned on the printing presses and printed its own money. But people could understand that. In the days gone by, that was how they did it. And uh, people could say, well, boy, they're really printing money today. And they could see this money going through all the economy, and, and it got worthless because there was so much of it. Well, now they got wise. They went into partnership with the banking industry. Now the money isn't printed so much. Only about 3% of all the money out there is currency or coin. All the rest of it is checkbook money. And some of it never even gets into a checkbook. It's just digits in the computer someplace. It's credits and reserves. And so now the money is created inside computers and in the banking uh, industry, and the average person has no idea that it all adds up to the same thing as if the government was just running printing presses. So in any event, the Federal Reserve creates it literally out of nothing and then gives it to the federal government, and then the federal government starts to spend it, and then it gives the money to its employees, its contractors, its welfare recipients, um, the people, the dictators around the world that get big chunks of it, and, and so forth. Um, now, now it goes into the banking system, and that's where the action really heats up. Let's just imagine that the $1,000 that was created out of nothing by the Federal Reserve System and given to the federal, uh, given to the government, now is um, paid to a uh, postal worker. So he has a $1,000 check. He takes the $1,000 down to his private bank, deposits it into his checking account, and um, now he's got a deposit of $1,000. Now, the bank that just received that $1,000 is really happy because now it can loan an additional $9,000 based on that $1,000 deposit. Hmm. Seems incredible, but when you go into the bank, if somebody just deposited $1,000 into that bank, they can turn around and make a loan to you for $9,000. And where did that extra nine come from? Out of thin air. They just created out of nothing. That's how money comes into being in America and through most of the world today. It's called fractional reserve banking. So money comes into being out of thin air, and of course the bank collects interest on nothing. It's like they had. It's like somebody put the money into the vault. They save the money, and then you go borrow it, and you pay interest on it. That would seem fair, but that's not what happens. That money wasn't in the vault. Nobody saved that money. Nobody sacrificed for that money. They didn't give up anything for that money. They just created it out of thin air just for the loan, and then the bank charges interest on that nothing. So naturally, under these circumstances, the money supply expands. It goes bigger and bigger and because there's no break. 
uh, if, no, if it were backed by gold or silver, you couldn't expand it. It would just be would be pegged to the amount of gold or silver behind it. But under this system, the money supply expands. And whenever that's done, it's done a lot in history, the money supply always expands faster than the rate of expansion of goods and services because it's too easy mm-hmm. to to make money. Mm-hmm. Now, when you've got money expanding faster than goods and services, you've got a disproportionate uh, ratio between the two, and you've got this thing called inflation. So we say prices are going up, prices are going up. Not so, really. Prices don't go up. What we really see is that the value of the dollar is going down. Now, if the dollar were measured in something that couldn't be created out of thin air, let's say silver or gold, well, then prices wouldn't go up. Um, a perfect example of that is if uh, if we had lived in ancient Rome and had a one-ounce gold coin, we could have purchased a, a very nice toga, a hefted belt, and a pair of sandals. That was approximately the price in Rome. Hmm. Here we are, thousands of years later, if we have a one-ounce gold coin without any numismatic value, just the value of the gold, we can go to a a store and we can buy a very nice suit, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. The price really hasn't changed in thousands of years for those items when measured in something of intrinsic value, real money. But when measured in terms of funny money or fiat money or money created out of nothing, which we now have, that supply of money expands, the prices appear to go up, and so we lose purchasing power. Well, losing purchasing power is the same thing as losing money. There's no difference than if we have to if we have to spend a hundred dollars in taxes, or if we lose a hundred dollars in purchasing power, we still wind up with a hundred dollars less hmm. in our lives. And that money, that loss of purchasing power, is a tax. It's just as much a tax as anything else that we send directly to the government. But this is a hidden tax. And it's the most uh, relentless of all taxes. There are no uh, deductions, no exemptions. Everybody must pay it, and the ones who pay it most dearly are the ones who can least afford it. Uh, let me see if I can understand this. Let, let's say I put money in the bank, and I earn 5% interest on it, but at the same time, inflation goes up 5%. I have not increased my buying power. I, in essence, have the same money in terms of its value that I did at the beginning of the year, but I will be taxed on that 5%. That's correct. So even though I've not really produced anything as far as I've, I've added value or anything, I've only kept up with the inflation they've created, they still have an opportunity to take some of that away. So, so rather than taking a proportion of the extra goods that I've created, they've taken a proportion of the original goods that I had already that had been taxed before. That's correct. You paid your tax first. What's left over, you invest, and then you pay a tax on your interest, and what you have left over is less than what you started because of the uh, decline in purchasing power. You know, it's interesting. This whole principle you're talking about with uh, the confiscation by means of inflation uh, is an ancient practice. Uh, they've just come up with more clever ways to do it. The unjust weights and measures. That's right. If yeah. you think in the Bible, yeah. they talk about using unjust weights and measures in the marketplace, mm-hmm. where they would have scales to measure out the value of something you bought based upon certain weights of coins or things. And when certain people in the marketplace had a dishonest scale, sort of like the butcher with the thumb on the scale, when they had a certain weights that they used that were in their benefit when they were selling and another set when they were buying, God considered that one of the most grievous offenses in the Bible. 
he considered that up there with the most heinous idolatry and other things that went on. And, and people of faith today don't understand that this is something that's a very high priority with God. Well, this is exactly what's happening with inflation. Uh, yeah, because the the scale or the measuring device is supposedly the dollar, is it not? And the, the dollar keeps changing its value with the passage of time. As they keep creating more and more of them, the dollar shrinks. So it's not a very good measuring stick. It keeps getting smaller and smaller. It takes more of them and more of them to reach from your head to your toe. So uh, that's exactly what's going on. And the underlying uh, crime or sin, in my view, is that it's theft. That's right. It's theft. It's exactly. Theft. That's what it is. Exactly. It is it is deception at its core. There's there's another uh, aspect that you have talked about in your book that that is extremely important today and very relevant. And that's this whole concept about the government intervening in bailouts uh, of industries or the banking industry getting involved. And your book actually talks about this. Uh, what were some of the most important historical bailouts? Is that something big in the news today? And 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 who really benefits when these bailouts occur? Well, we, there are quite a few of them, actually, but we must understand that in these bailouts, uh, who are they bailing out? Uh, the way the news stories are often written, you get the impression that the government is bailing out the company uh, or the, the debtor. It might be a country in certain cases. Uh, we've had a lot, we've bailed out Mexico a couple of times, and you know, we bail out countries that are in real big trouble. But uh, we're not really bailing out the country or the company or the city because what, where that money goes is goes to the banks. The problem is that the, the banks are not getting paid. The, the loan has gone sour. They cannot collect their interest. They've lost their capital. They made a bad loan, and the company is going uh, out of business, and so the bank is going to go out of business too. So what's really happening is that the government steps in, sends the money to the company or to the country with a stipulation that that money must be used to pay the banks, to keep the interest flowing to the banks. So although it's very seldom said that way, what we really are bailing out are the banks, to keep the banks in business. Uh, the taxpayers are, are being asked to make sure that the banks don't lose money. What's really happening is that the banks know that they can make a bad loan, and if the bad, when the loan finally does go sour, they can just turn it over to Congress. Congress will give them the money and say, well, the taxpayers have to you know, make good on that loan. And so that's really what this whole bailout procedure is about. We must understand this money is going to the banks. And uh, we have a, quite an interesting history of that since the Federal Reserve System was created. Some of the best uh, known examples uh, were back in 1970 when it really got underway. Uh, the Federal Reserve System bailed out Penn Central Railroad, which went bankrupt. So we can't let Penn Central Railroads go out of business, can we? No, because then it stops sending interest <laughs> to the to the banks that lent money to it. So the government stepped in and spent, I cannot tell you how many, hundreds of millions of dollars to keep Penn Central Railroad paying interest on its loans to the banks. That was the big bailout of 1970. That same year, they did the same thing with Lockheed Corporation. They bailed out Lockheed so Lockheed could keep sending money to the banks. Uh, the Commonwealth Bank of Detroit uh, went belly up in 1972, and the taxpayers were asked to bail it out and send money to it and make good on all of its bad loans. 
Uh, New York City had the same problem. In 1975, taxpayers were asked to bail out New York City, so it could keep sending interest payments to the banks that had lent it money. And then Chrysler in 1978, First Pennsylvania Bank in 1980, Continental Illinois in 1982, and then, of course, all the banks in the uh, of the third world countries that have come along in the intervening years. Russia and China joined the ranks. We sent money to them in the 1990s. And of course, now we come along in 2009, and literally all of the major banks are being uh, bailed out with taxpayer money. Uh, and uh, the giant automobile organ, uh, corporations uh, are, are getting billions of dollars so they can keep sending money to the banks. And, you know, all pretenses now are dropped. Congress doesn't even read the bills. They, they joke about it. They, no, we don't have time to read this bill. How much money do you need? And $700 billion in one day, in over a trillion in a single month, there is no limit to what's going on now. From, in from, other words, it's the end of the line as far as the economy for this country is concerned. We're back here at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom doesn't like inflation bionic. Yeah. But we talked about it a lot this time. Indeed, indeed. Uh, and about the inflation tax. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know if most people have any clue to understand this. Well, you know, I, it's, gosh, where to start? Our government does this on purpose. Yeah. They do that as an insidious way where it doesn't look like they're taxing us. Mm -hmm. But by weakening our dollar and then when prices of things go up, mm -hmm. with where you move in the tax bracket, you automatically are taxed on something where you're just keeping your head above water. Here's actually a way that I like to explain it to people. Envision all all of uh, money and credit like as a big pie, right? With inflation, uh -huh. what happens is the uh, the government can expand the size of that pie, right? And and they take proportionally more of that stuff, right? So you actually get like a little bit smaller sliver proportional to the size of the pie, and uh, but you get a bigger piece of pie though. Then. No, no, they take all of it. Yeah, I didn't understand that at all. No. Well, okay. What about my reference about uh, that I said in the show about the fact that you can actually earn interest on your payment and it just equals inflation, and you're taxed on that interest payment, although really you have no more value than what you had before. Yeah, yeah. That's that's sort of the insidious nature to all of this stuff. You know, I mean, there's no actual work being done when the uh, government charges you inflation. Well, and that's one reason why I'm thinking they're not going to tolerate deflation very long. Well, I don't think they have any choice. Well, I mean, <laughs> deflation may come, but what I'm saying is they'll open the printing presses. The, the other reason why is that their own debts will default immediately sure. because de debts become crushing in deflation. And they try to inflate their way out of debt, so then the fixed debts they owe are proportionally smaller. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the well, long-term payment is horrible. But well, I'll, I'll tell you what. If you want to look at if you want to look at the uh, uh, American security, Securitization Forum's annual reports, the annual reports, we had I don't know about nine months ago a fifty trillion dollar pool of money and credit mm -hmm. that is now off by about two thirds. When none of it's coming back. Now that is deflation right there, huh. and it just kind of hasn't quite. Right trickled down yet. Well, our dear friend Mish, who uh, has been on our show numerous times and mm -hmm. explained this, and we follow his blog, mm -hmm. he has expressed at least for some time we'll go through deflationary pressures, and we are seeing that wages are stagnant. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just not a demand to buy stuff. Prices have to come down. Mm -hmm. But eventually that will come to an end, and he, even he admits that will come to an end. Yeah, and yeah. then to, to try to get away from these crushing debts, they'll have to start inflating later. Yeah, so I, it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. You have to 
you know, watch your deflationary sort of budget, and then you have to decide that, okay, here mm-hmm. comes inflation. I'm going to buy 10 houses and uh, two cars with credit cards. Well, well, ladies and gentlemen, I know this gets complicated, makes your head hurt, but you cannot avoid it for your own family's yeah. sake. At you this cannot point, not pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. You'd better listen to people like our guest, and particularly people like Mish, who are writing about this on a daily basis mm-hmm. uh, and also being on our show. Because this will really affect and put the squeeze on your family. Of course, the first order of business is keeping a job. But once you've been able to keep a job, <laughs> if you can do that, you're one step up on. Well, two but it's still not. Well, but it's still not sufficient. It's yeah. still You can you can have a job and be in the poorhouse because of the way things are going. So, mm-hmm. uh, someone who's not in the poorhouse is our friend uh, Merv. Merv. So we'd like to have Merv come in and tell you all how you can contact us at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, this is the end of it. All she wrote. Boom. Just for today. (laughs) Come back tomorrow and hear the third installment with G. Edward Griffin. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a great day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Doc Future. And I am Tom. I don't like unjust weights and measures bionic. Okay. That's a new one. That's a good one. Yeah. Especially given our topic. Very biblical. Yes. Yeah, because we have been interviewing this week G. Edward Griffin, the author of the legendary book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah. Talking about the history of the Federal Reserve. And in fact, not about Nephilim for a change. Not about Nephilim for <laughs> once. Although the Rockefellers, we I don't know if they actually we wouldn't have a show in. if we didn't have Rockefellers yeah. and CFR. We should have them on sometime. Yeah, uh, we're talking this week about the Federal Reserve, smoking gun evidence of a banker-run world. If you have not read the creature from Jekyll Island, you should get it. It's required reading. Um, in the meantime, while you listen to this. Uh, if you digest the information here, plus anything, in fact, I think you said some of the some uh, video is online about. Yeah, yeah. This. Actually, what if you go to futurequakeradio.blogspot.com after you, of course, listen to the interview and download right. our podcasts. Uh, go to Future Quake Radio. So this is like a little after hours cafe after the yeah, show. Yeah, for, in case you can't just get enough Doctor Future. It's like on. an after show party. Yeah, it's where the cast shows up and uh-huh. kind of lets their hair down. Yeah, okay. Yeah, if you just go down to the left side there, there's a little little link that says video du jour. And, uh, really? Yeah, it's there. For re- required viewing. Yeah, there'll be a couple little clips there and maybe maybe some other stuff too. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, be sure and catch that because that'll give you a, a better understanding until you get a hold of the book. But you need to really read about uh, what he writes about. Mm-hmm. When you understand the history of our banking system, 
how it, this is hard documentation. This is not just some kind of rumor mill where they have actually started wars, controlled wars, con, mm-hmm. uh, initiated political ideologies, yeah. and been the, the puppet masters behind the scenes of them. Well, and I don't, I don't want to give away too much of our, you know, what we're going to question them on today, but we do, uh, you know, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, you know, the, the Red Revolution yeah, we, there in Russia was. We was, get everything in yeah, there. Yeah, that was financed by bankers. That's right. Know? They they tried to make that whole thing happen. Well, just like our wealthy guys over here, like Ford and others, uh, financed Hitler. Indeed. Yeah. You know? Did you know? I, and I might do a post on this at the, at the blog. Did you know that uh, Davos, you know, the, where they have the Switzerland, big, yeah, the big the yeah. big financial meeting, used to be uh, a stronghold for Nazis in Switzerland. Not just really? a stronghold, like their main huh. base for spies. There were tens of thousands no, of I didn't Nazi know that. spies there. I didn't know that. Yeah. Now, like when the um, uh, the the oh, who's it? von Trapp family, when they came across the mountains there into Switzerland from mm-hmm. Austria, mm-hmm. did they run into those Nazi spies? Well, I, I don't know. Like they, Fritz or Franz or whoever was the one who blew the whistle on them. Yeah, yeah. You remember you remember that, don't you? Hans and Franz. Edelweiss, Edelweiss. Oh yeah, that's a pretty song. Uh-huh. Thank, well, just when I sing it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I hope that puts you all in the proper frame of reference. Uh, with no further ado, we'd like to introduce Mr. G. Edward Griffin with part three of our interview on the Federal Reserve, and then we'll be right back to talk about it further on Future Quake. From the time that you wrote that book and you made all these points out, uh, they were just pikers back in those days, so doing these things, a few hundred million here, a hundred, hundred million there. Did you ever foresee how extreme it would get like we've seen in the last six months in our country? Be so well, blatant. unfortunately, I did, and and uh, I wrote about it in the book. You may remember the second chapter from the last is mm-hmm. called a pessimistic scenario, mm-hmm. and um, I was amazed. I went back and reread that chapter after all these years. I just did it a couple of weeks ago, and I was shocked <laughs> at the accuracy of the. Um, well, it was a whimsical scenario. It was in a, in a way, it was like a prediction of what I thought was going to happen. And um, I was shocked by the total accuracy of it. So I guess, yes, I did foresee it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but, but one thing they stay consistent on, they never say, we need to save these bankers on Wall Street. We don't want to send them home. It is always some other third party, some sympathetic party that we've got to save, whether it's the, the auto worker, whether it's the people with the mortgage on their homes, whatever it is, uh, they, in cahoots with their politician and their, their media cohorts, I've always painted a picture of some other third party as the beneficiary when they pass the hat, uh, well, rather yes, than putting the in trick. the pocket of who, the one who's truly being protected. So in other words, when they lend, lend money out, and they, in, in essence, are investing in the people they loan money to, there's, a, there's an age-old concept of risk and reward. Uh, they get a reward of returns on their money they lend in, ter- uh, in turn for accepting the risk that some of those go bad. And they're supposed to be smart enough to be able to plan for a certain number of those ventures to go bad. Now what they're doing is that when those do go bad, they want some other uninvolved party to come out and pay the price, whereas they keep the money when these uh, risky ventures go well. Someone else now they expect to pay the money when the ventures go bad, correct? That is absolutely correct, yes. And the public buys into it because, as you mentioned, they always as a beneficiary, uh, some innocent person or some category that really we have great uh, compassion for. And, of course, the ultimate compassion is we must save America. 
You know, how many times have we mm-hmm. heard Americans, I mean, politicians in the last few weeks say, well, we did this to save America. You know, there, there's two historical entities, and, and I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I, w- I want to really focus on where we go from here, but two entities that really stand out that defined a lot of these, the, 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 what, what makes a modern banking system. One is the Bank of England, and the other is the, the Rothschild family. Um, can you very briefly summarize what, what they did to, to make evolutionary leaps in the modern banking system in terms of their association with politicians, concepts like frank, fractional reserve lending, these type of things that they did to make the banking system what it is today? Well, yeah, that's a very uh, interesting history, and we don't have time to go into all of it, but the, the overview is, is quite simple. And that is that the Rothschilds were probably that they evolved into the strongest and largest banking dynasty of Europe. They weren't the only ones, but they were certainly recognized as the largest and the most uh, wealthy, the most influential. Mm-hmm. And they gained tremendous power over governments because of their ability to loan money to governments in times of crisis. And if you know if a government can't uh, can't defeat its enemies in times of war, it ceases to exist. And so governments never question uh, the price tag. Uh, the price is immaterial. It's we must survive. We must win this war. Uh, we must uh, defeat our enemy at any cost. Otherwise, it doesn't make any difference. And so financing wars has always been a very profitable uh, business for uh, banking institutions. And and they've over the centuries have learned that. Uh, Financing any side of any war, it doesn't make too much difference, uh, is very profitable. And uh, that's how the Rothschild family uh, made a tremendous amount of its wealth. Uh, they were well known uh, and even boasted of the fact that they, they had couriers uh, and delivering money and information to both sides of many of the wars of Europe. And it was just you know, accepted as that's the way it was done. And, um, of course, England was no um, exception. It was not immune from that. And the Rothschilds in um, in England became very powerful. And as a result of the Napoleonic Wars, uh, some very interesting <laughs> shenanigans where they, they uh, made it look like uh, Britain had lost uh, the war, like Napoleon had lost uh, the, 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 that, um, I should say... Waterloo. Yeah, won, Waterloo, won the yeah. Battle of Waterloo. But, yeah, yeah they, they thought that... Uh, uh, that England had lost the war, and 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 Rothschild was standing there at the what we would now call the stock exchange, and he he started to sell, 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 and he looked very very uh, remorseful, and so everybody figured that he had the latest information, and that the stocks would be no good, and so everybody uh, imitated him, and they all started to sell, and the pro- prices plummeted within a matter of minutes uh, to uh, just a small fraction of what they were. And then, unbeknownst, um, Rothschild had his agents there buying them up. As soon as they hit a certain prescribed low point, then they would be bought up for pennies on the pound. And um, he wound up with about 80 to 85 percent of all the uh, the uh, government bonds at just at a at a closeout fire sale, you might mm-hmm. say. And uh, through interesting stories, and uh, it's the way it really happened. This is uh, this isn't made up. There's so many versions of it from different sources that you. And I'm you, I'm guessing that's not the last time that happened. No. And, and what's even more no. what's more no. discouraging is not when they benefit on the tail end of a war, but when they benefit by encouraging the beginning of a war. That yes. that's even yes. a, a worse scenario that occurs. 
Well, anyway, to make a long story short, the Rothschilds became very influential with the Bank of England. The Bank of England was the granddaddy of the central banking system that we now know it. The Federal, the federal Reserve System was actually modeled directly after the Bank of England structure. And so what we call a central bank is really a liaison between the government and a private banking cartel. And it was perfected with the Bank of England under the watchful eye of the Rothschilds. That was imported to the United States in 1913, became the Federal Reserve System, and now it's pretty much the model all over the world. Okay. And and they developed again, the, the, or really established this whole fractional reserve lending where they could take one dollar in the in the account and loan out ten and basically name their price on the amount of money that they bring in uh, no matter what kind of interest rate they charge that's right if people are desperate they don't really care about the interest rate so much mm-hmm. but but even at low interest rates they still make a killing because of this leverage effect that they're allowed to create. Yes, even with low interest rates a very good point in fact that was the reason uh, that the Federal Reserve System, uh, one of the reasons it was uh, accepted by the American people is because the propaganda was that, well, if we can expand the money supply at will, then we don't need to charge an awful lot of interest. And so, um, you know, you can make a profit. If you're charging interest on nothing, you don't have to charge high interest to uh, to make a profit on nothing. So uh, that sounded good to a lot of Americans because they said, oh, boy, low interest rates not realizing what they were getting drawn into. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the banks um, are able to pay much lower interest rates on depositors that deposit their money, but due, due to leverage, they're still getting a, a still tremendous return on their investment. Oh, even a in huge interest. return, yes. If you just look at the deposit uh, foundation of their reserves, yeah, the interest is not so high, but then multiply that by nine. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, sort of bringing this around and trying to process this information, and we've only talked about a tiny bit from your book. Um, this reminds me of where I hear probably some of the best uh, wisdom, secular wisdom that I get. Uh, as far as talking to other people, usually I'll hear the best real-worldly wisdom from either old Vietnam veterans or the old guys you see uh, drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes down at the local McDonald's. Uh, if you sit across from the table and listen to them, uh, you'll hear a lot of comments that really stand the test of time. And one of the comments you'll always hear is follow the money. It's a very, very simple term uh, in any kind of issue that's going on in, in the public. Uh, but it seems like your book sort of proves that conclusively, that that, that is a key uh, source to be able to figure out what's really going on in the world around us. In line with that, h- how do the banking and finance communities control our media uh, that tried to uh, form public opinion about these issues, and even foment wars. You've talked about them capitalizing on wars about by intelligence data to e- even actually encourage and, and try to create uh, war events when desired. That's a very difficult question to answer because um, it's it's complex. It, it happens not in a simple fashion but it happens uh, through a very complex web uh, uh, networking of people with many different motives, many different agendas, but all uh, in parallel to each other. Uh, it, it does. I guess the best way to answer your question is it happens as a result of personal networking. You cannot say that the banks uh, give orders to the media uh, to uh, 
produce a certain point of view in their editorial uh, pages or to slant the news pages a certain way because the banks don't have that connection directly. But when you start looking at the people who control the banks and the people who control the networks and the newspapers and all of that, you find out, oh, wait a minute, these people interact at other levels. They interact primarily, yeah. for, for example, through the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an organization that many Americans have never heard about, but is probably the most important single organization in the United States. I consider it to be the uh, the uh, group of hidden rulers of America. It's about 4,000 people, and they all uh, uh, have a common goal. They all agree on one thing. And that is that they want to create a global government based on the model of collectivism. That is about that's that's their one unifying goal. They may disagree on other things. Uh, you'll find Democrats there. You'll find Republicans there. Uh, you'll find um, people from all religions, uh, and, uh, cultural backgrounds. But they all are working to build a global government based on the model of collectivism, which means they're trying to get rid of American sovereignty, mm -hmm. they're trying to get rid of American money, they're trying to get rid of American uh, military, they're trying to build a global government. So let me see if I understand this. They may disagree on how to carve up the pie or how to best pull it off, but, but they share a certain elitism in their way what, of viewing. They may disagree on how to bake the pie, but they know what pie they want. Right, and, mm -hmm. and they know that they want to keep the club small in terms of the people who are actually calling the shots and generally unaccountable to the populace of the world. Exactly. For the large, for the most part, not even visible. And so that really is the answer because you find that uh, the heads of all of the banks uh, are in this organization. You'll find mm. that the heads of all of the great media institutions are in this organization. You'll find the heads of all of the great educational institutions are in this organization. And it's through this networking, through this fabric uh, of other organizations, and, and uh, that's not the only one, by the way, but it's probably the most, the largest one and the most important mm -hmm. one. So it's done through personal networking. And when they're not there, they like to go hang out in front of a big stone owl out on the, le <laughs> on the West yeah, no Coast joke. or uh, maybe an occasional Bilderberg meeting or things like that uh, exactly. where, these, you know, exactly. where these people hang out. But they have a general mindset. And, and the thing is, th this, these are not the rantings of some lunatic on the Internet or some rumors of a conspiracy theorist. Th these are quotations from their own writings, their own publications and books, where they're unabashedly supportive of this elitist approach. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, what, what we're saying is not something we're trying to speculate and read between the lines. Yeah. We just read the lines from yeah, their own Lawrence, print that Lawrence, they write from themselves. Yeah, Lawrence Rockefeller in his book, uh, I think it's page 405, 405, talked about, uh, he said he was, you know, if the charge was that if he was uh, uh, working against the best interests of the United States, he stood guilty and was proud of it. The, yeah, no, that's mean, right. <laughs> and you know, like you know, the World Federalist Society. Yeah. Uh, who, who also uh, mm -hmm. stands very proud of the fact that they set nationalism aside, their local populace, and look at a, a global society, global mm -hmm. village, and the le less that the people know about it, the better in their regards. Yeah, yeah. And so that's it. They don't really hide it. They don't boast of it in, in, uh, in public where they think the unwashed masses uh, will hear it and who may not understand. But when they talk among themselves at their own meetings and, and the journals which are to be read by their own people. They're very forthright about it. Mm -hmm.
Well, uh, you know, related to this, and this is another deep topic we can only touch on, but, but you refer to it in your book as an example. A, a lot of the world political movements that we think have other ideologies or reasons behind them or struggles between different parties often have the handprints of these characters. And I just bring up something like the Bolshevik Revolution, which really was probably the most defining moment of the 20th century. Uh, somebody could argue that, that, that Hitler uh, would, would rank up there. But, but really in terms of affecting the entire world for any extended period of time, uh, they certainly affected it for, for an entire century. Uh, there is evidence to, to see that uh, some of these wealthy financial interests had a financial stake in creating that kind of revolution and then benefiting from it, correct? Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, I have a chapter uh, in the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, dealing with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, it has to do with the influence of these Wall Street and London bankers, by the way, they were also involved, mm -hmm. um, in, um, in financing the Bolshevik Revolution. And they were very active in, in Moscow during that period. They went over there, the ones from America went over there in the disguise of uh, Red Cross officers. They uh, actually, uh, they were, they were Red Cross officers, but they, mm -hmm. they got a quick commission. They, they made a very large donation to the Red Cross and they literally bought the, the whole division of the Red Cross so they could staff it with their own people. And they went over there with ambulances and uniforms and, nurses and doctors and staffs and supplies and all of that but they were bankers <laughs> and uh, they went over there and their sole purpose was to uh, communicate with the um, revolutionary groups and to mm -hmm. negotiate and they funded uh, both the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks um, but they spent most of their time mm -hmm. in, with the Bolsheviks and no idea as uh, you know they, they wanted to finance whoever was going to be successful and strike a deal with them and gain uh, concessions with uh, the new government, which they did. So they put their chips across the table. They put bet on red and black. Exactly. Uh, when that, just like when they give contributions to Democrats and Republicans both as well. So I guess you could say really the Bolsheviks didn't win the revolution. The bankers did. Uh, the well, Bolsheviks yes. were the middlemen, but the bankers <laughs> were the one that really pulled it off. Well, it, that's true, but it's even deeper than that. The Mensheviks won the revolution. They're the ones that actually right. uh, unseated the Tsar. And they were in full charge of the revolutionary government, and uh, the the Bolsheviks came in with just a handful of them with uh, rifles, and uh, moved into the assembly and literally uh, did a coup d'état. They just took over the assembly with just uh, just a few of them. They stole the revolution. And and the same thing we can say about uh, World War One, where we have bankers funding both sides of the army of. Uh, the, the different combatants that were involved in trying to preserve shipping and, and the interest of the British and their financial interest. Uh, well, and not surprisingly, the, um, not surprisingly, in World War II, a lot of Swiss, uh, uh, a Swiss uh, spy agents worked through the Red Cross. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Adam LeBaron's book called uh, oh, "It's All About the, the the Myth of Swiss Neutrality uh -huh. in World War II." Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because when we hear uh, Palestinian terrorists taking uh, ambulances and putting guns and ammunition, that, that is a horrible, terrible it's thing. An old trick. Yeah. But, but they've learned this from the bankers mm -hmm. on how to do this and yeah. how to co-opt uh, supposedly neutral parties to be mm -hmm. able to, to, to do their thing. We are back here at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And Tom, not big on the Rothschilds, bionic. Well, they did come up.
I did. Were they the surrogate for the Rockefellers this week? I think we did actually mention they, the they were the punching bag. Well, we did we did talk about the CFR. Yeah, which and and they sort of they, run. Yeah, they run the, that. So I mean, it's almost like we we've got everybody, but well, we didn't want to shortchange the Rockefeller yeah. fans or the Rockefellers who listen to Future Quick. Oh, they're out there, believe me. <laughs> like on echelon. <laughs> they don't or call you. Yeah, no, well, only at, only early in the morning. I get check. I got Manila envelopes in the mail with money in it. Really? Just stacks of money. I figured I thought you got them too. No, man. And it just launches on our, you our for the next planning. That launches <laughs> on you, man. Next planning meeting. They just say, "Say this." That's oh. all they do. Well, launches on you uh-huh. still. Yeah. <laughs> What you what you, what did you take from our discussion today, you which know, was today, pretty broad? Yeah, at, you know, today was kind of like we begun the discussion. You could call it like bailouts, a critical review. We, you know, he listed yeah. some of the some of the right, but we know, moved on into more history stuff. Yeah, the Rothschilds, and you know, we did. I did mention Bank Ir- of England. Yeah, Bank of England, and in- interestingly, the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, yeah. and the Mensheviks uh-huh. talked about both of those people. Um, that's an interesting thing, you know. He he told that story about the uh, uh, the Rothschilds, yeah. or the big banking dynasty, uh-huh. and uh, you know they circulated that this false rumor uh, around England that uh, uh, Napoleon had actually won at Waterloo, yeah. and they everybody sold their bonds, yeah. and Rothschild uh, Meyer Rothschild was able to come yeah. in and buy up those bonds for pennies on the dollar, and ended up owning eighty five percent of uh, uh, the the United Kingdom's wealth at that point. You, you mean uh, just like all those investors that did all of those uh, puts or what it, what it, whatever it is, uh, shorting the stock of mm-hmm. the airlines the day before nine one one. Very similar, yeah. Where they, they came in and you know, just heard, made a windfall on that yeah, one day windfall. before nine one occurred. Yeah, yeah the tripled the amount of. It was even more than that. It was like okay. Quadruple. So we have this history, war after war after war, where mm-hmm. the bankers are instigators in it. Yes. They profit from it. So then we have a war on terror, and we're led to believe that the bankers are not the ones behind this sure. like every other war. Yeah, even though they're all of a sudden calling the people who are into the Constitution terrorists and, you know, uh, you know you've know, got the, the practicing the gun confiscations up there at uh, uh, Carroll County. What else is going on? Let's see. Uh, I didn't mean on? to get us back into that whole topic again, but the, the key is if you look at the Bank of England, if you look at the Rothschilds, you look at these other ones – you know, it's just right for conspiracy theorists to say, "Oh, you guys are really mm-hmm. nuts." Yeah, but and yet, and yet, what do you hear from most mainstream sources? Don't say this. You don't don't be into conspiracy theories. You're crazy if you do. Never mind. Be quiet. We're gonna put chips in your brain. Don't believe what we have to say. You know. Yeah, I hate when they put chips in my brain. Yeah. I hate when, I, unless they could broadcast Future Quake to it. In fact, no, I would no. want all of our listeners to have chips in their brain if it just got Future Quake. I guess I, I guess we do enough programming of people anyway. We or, have changed a lot of minds out there. Well, good. I'd I'd like to think that we do some deprogramming, unprogramming. You know, like uh-huh. we, like everybody's supposed to be running Mac software, and we took out the. Yeah. Uh, the know, closest thing I do uh, with uh, programming is I'll run a lot of ads in the back of these detective magazines where it says, Lonely, send $1 to Dr. Future. And I find the Whoa. power of suggestion that the money just piles in. Really? Wow. Yeah. I'm going to try that. Yeah, it works great. Put that there on the blog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, ladies and gentlemen. But it is a great idea if you think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, another great idea is to have Merv come in and tell you how to contact us here at Future mm-hmm. Quick. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com 
suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, that's it. We've already frittered uh, our way out of I was going to say, speaking of lonely and down to his last dollar, let's have Merv. Nope, it's too late. Yeah, oh well. It's too late. we got to say goodbye. It. All right, goodbye. Ladies and gentlemen, come back for our last installment with G.O.R. Griffin tomorrow. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a great day. Bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. 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 Welcome to the Thursday edition of the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom. Let's get out of Babylon Bionic. Amen, brother. Yeah. Yeah, we get all spiritual today on today's show. I think that was, I think that was, I don't know if curveball is quite the right thing, but I don't think everybody asks, uh, every interviewer asks G. Edward Griffin those sort of questions. Well, you know, you know we, we, we briefly mentioned him right before the interview started, mm-hmm. you know, that we'd like to look at the spiritual issue. That's what we're here for. Yeah. We're here to honor Christ. We're, we're looking here. at information from a biblical worldview. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he covers a wide range of audiences mm-hmm. and goes just with facts. A lot like uh, Jerome Porcy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Uh, we know these men, these men also uh, mm-hmm. um, are godly men. And, indeed. Uh, indeed. Um, so there's an opportunity for us to. Indeed, ask I thought that was an interesting sort of analysis that you know, for him Babylon is not just a physical place, but it's more of a mindset. Right. Of course, know. we're going to get into that in this last section. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I'm yeah, sorry. that's you, okay. Take it back. Well, you, were just, just, you were just prophesying. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, just wait to hear what you uh, have to hear about putting uh, the discussion we've had this week with G. Everett Griffin about the Federal Reserve and the evolution of our banking system into a spiritual context. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're all about. We want to understand so we understand a biblical worldview of what's going on. And that's what you're going to hear in the next few minutes. So no further ado, here is G. Everett Griffin, uh, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, talking about the Federal Reserve, smoking gun evidence of a banker-run world. We'll be right back to have a quick wrap-up here on Future Quake. To bring this around to uh, to what is relevant to our audience here and, and people of faith, you know, Bible-believing Christians should not be surprised at all by any of this shocking data that you shared with us, just a portion of it here on our show. Uh, since the collusion of the kings of the earth, talked about in the Bible, and Babylon uh, itself is shown repeatedly in Scripture, uh, including in the third seal of Revelation. It's very clear. You can you can almost envision it in your mind, what you've talked about here, with the scales weighing out uh, who gets the food and how much weight and gold and silver for the food that they get. And then at the end, you see the judgment of the great city Babylon, who consorted with all of the merchants of the earth. And eventually, it says they, they dealt in all things, even the souls of men, which I think we could certainly see our banking interest in the World Bank dealing in the third world uh, for some time now in that way. And that same passage that it talks about the fall of Babylon, uh, uh, God tells his people to get out of Babylon. And that's a, a real challenge uh, when he says, uh, for, for my children to get out of it. What are some practical ways that, that Bible-believing Christians can do that? And does the Bible itself give any kind of suggestions? 
Well, you know, that's not really uh, my area of expertise, but you did ask me a direct question, and I'll, I'll just give you my opinion. that in, in my mind, I don't think that the, the Babylon is a physical place to get out of, so mm. much as it is uh, a state of mind or a political ideology that we're in. That it's taken over the world. I don't think you can get off the planet, in other words. There's no place to go, but you can get out of Babylon. If you change the thinking of the people who are with us, we created this thing. We allowed it to happen. We fell for all of the devices, all the lies, all, all of the deception. We, we just uh, were so naive. We just didn't want to take time to learn. We didn't, uh, we didn't want to question. We didn't want to assume the responsibility of citizenship. We were focused on material things and pleasures, and we let this happen. And I think the way we're going to get out of Babylon is to, is to go back and assume responsibility for our lives, our families, our country. And uh, that, to me, it's it's not a physical place, but a mental place we have to get out of. No, oh, certainly, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a mindset, a, a a corrupting mindset of greed and exploitation of others. And at at one time, that whole system is going to be judged, and it's going to come all crashing down. And we're already seeing some cracks in it right now. And people are being pushed to the limit. Uh, I, I recently wrote a, a chapter for a book where I talk about the passage where um, the um, Egyptians save up their grain, and Joseph helps them with this. But in the process of letting the government buy grains during the rich years, uh, the people do not store up for themselves. And because they do not have a commodity that retains any kind of value, they have to give up basically everything else they own to get the food back from the very government they confiscated it from them and eventually went into servitude. The people of Egypt uh, first gave up their work tools, in, o- in other words, to get a year's worth of food, and then followed up and gave up their entire servitude and their land. Uh, and the Pharaoh took the people, put them in the cities in government-owned housing, and had them work on the newly uh, confiscated government land. The only people who survived that were the priests who actually were paid in food, which was a commodity that retained its value over time. When we look at ancient passages like that, does that give us suggestions that we really need to be careful in thinking of where we put our physical assets and money and things that retain actual value so we don't get caught in that situation? Well, yeah, I think there's a perfect parallel to what's going on right now. Um, we're we're, we're uh, asking the government to uh, to bail out uh, the banks, to bail out the corporations, to, to save us, uh, save our mortgages, to provide food for us. To provide shelter, to give us jobs, to give us health care. So, so the government gives us some of our money back to do all of these things. We don't realize that that's our money that they're doing that with. They mm-hmm. maybe didn't get all of it from us in taxes, but getting most of it, or they will in the form of inflation. But it's our money. It's our purchasing power. It's the product of our labor, and we're we're letting them give some of that back to us, and in return, they will own us. That's where it's going. You know, if the bank gives the, I mean, if the government gives the money to the bank, the government will eventually own the bank. We already are seeing the government telling the banks now what to do. Well, of course, they gave them the money. Mm-hmm. If, the, if the government uh, gives money to the General Motors or Ford, then who do you suppose owns General Motors and Ford? It's the government. 
If the government takes care of our mortgage for us, the government will own our mortgage, will own our houses. If the government gives us food and shelter and, and gives us a job and health care and education, the government owns us. So, yes, that's an exact parallel. In, in the guise of turning to the government for help, in return, we turn ourselves over to the government and become slaves. So, in other mm. words, they would accomplish wow. what the Red Army never could do. As much as uh, Curtis LeMay, who I know someone near and dear to you, fought so valiantly to protect Americans from servitude from the Red Army, we will have given over our servitude to our own politicians and our own banks, correct? Not only given it, but eagerly given it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Very, very interesting. You know, Christians, and again, we talk to a Christian audience here, uh, they tend not to want to get involved in these kind of things on an activist role because they feel like it's a distraction from their uh, spreading of the gospel and what they consider more spiritual pursuits. Uh, but as we've mentioned in our show, this is an issue that's very, very important to God, that there be a just society and a very stable, orderly society that reflects him, and also that people are not exploited. We have responsibility to look out for our neighbors that they would not be as exploited as well. So, so I would take it that you would wholeheartedly support our listeners that try to take a role in being aware where our elected officials stand on these issues, holding them accountable, throwing them out of office when they do, don't do things to keep the, the bankers under control, uh, if they don't support uh, a currency that's backed up by, by real assets of value. Uh, but, but beyond that, is there anything else we can do, like, for example, trying to minimize in the meantime our involvement with the banking system, trying to work with others where we can actually use our assets to, to invest and fix things that we immediately use, maybe storing up for the future things that we use and assets rather than turning it over to the bankers uh, and putting it at risk. Are, are, there, are there networks or things that we can do within our communities to circumvent the power of these bankers? Well, there is the short-term uh, view and the long-term view. In the short term, I think yeah, each of us has uh, certain things that we can and, and must do. We have to get out of debt to whatever extent possible. Uh, we have to stop uh, spending money for exotic things. Uh, if it uh, keeps us in debt, we should be saving, in other words. We should be saving whatever we can in tangible uh, form, such as gold, silver, food. I don't know if you could stock up... Uh, uh, a huge pantry with food, that would be a good idea for long-term use. Anything uh, other than money. Money is a very bad bet, in my opinion, right now. Um, it's, right now it's holding up okay, but there, let's talk about it a year from now. I think mm -hmm. we'll see that the dollar will um, have lost a tremendous amount of value. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we need to put things aside and, and plan for some very hard times. Um, it, but in the long view, if we don't change the trends, it won't make any difference. I mean, supposing you had a nice little stockpile of gold and silver, uh, these uh, totalitarians would simply pass a law mm -hmm. and say, well, you can't, you can't have that anymore. And they have before. They have they before. Have before, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they can do anything. You can say, well, I'll, I'll get my house paid off. At least I'll have my house secure. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. They may decide that you don't deserve to live in that house there people with, who are more worthy, or maybe there ought to be two or three families in that house instead of just one. So there's no way that you can escape this thing unless you turn the system around. We cannot just be passive and wait and see what happens. We have to be proactive and get out there and turn this system around. And that's the reason I created Freedom Force International back in 
2002, is to put together a network of leaders who are planning to work together and to recapture control of the power centers of society so that we can turn this system around. And by the power centers of society, I'm talking about the, uh, the political parties, the media centers, all of those groups and institutions that people follow and that which determine the policies of the nation. There are not many of them, but they're now in the hands of people who are collectivists. In other words, they're totalitarians. But both Republicans and Democrats, they may argue about um, uh, secondary issues, but as I mentioned before, they're in total agreement as to the building of a new world order based on the model of collectivism. We've got to replace those people. Uh, we've got to replace those people who run the financial institutions and who want nothing but, but fiat money. We've got to replace those people with others who have uh, a sound view of the basis of freedom, as we believe we do. We have what we call the creed of freedom, where we we can state with very great precision what we believe the foundation of freedom is. Um, we need to get people in there who have no hidden agendas, who aren't trying to rule anybody else, who want to restore the the nation to its foundations of freedom and prosperity again. So what I'm trying to say, it's taken me too long to say it, is that we need to get out of our homes and become active in the groups out there, the, act, the uh, proactive groups, the political parties in particular, and recapture control of our system. Otherwise, there's nothing we can do hmm. to survive. Well, as, as we come to our conclusion here, I want people to understand Freedom Force, because I wanted to really explain that uh, so people understand what it is. You, you are not just another guest that we might have on the show that laments the fact of where we are, describes it, explains the danger, and says good luck. You've actually taken the initiative to try to stimulate solutions and actually find a framework that people can get involved and get a part of to do this. Can you explain some specific initiatives Freedom Force has and, and some things that you're finding that are actually starting to bear some fruit that people can get involved with, and if so, how? Yes, well, it's a very uh, very important question because it, it's, it's shocking when I tell people um, Freedom Force doesn't do anything. <laughs> what? It's, it's kind of like this Council on Foreign Relations that we talked to before. Uh -huh. you, mm -hmm. you won't find the Council on Foreign Relations out there picketing for this or, or doing a letter-writing campaign for that. But the members Now, of now the they Council don't meet in front of a big stone owl, too, do they? Freedom no, Force? no. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> but their members are active in all of the power centers of America, making the power centers move toward more government and internationalism. So the mission of Freedom Force is to place our members into the power centers of society, the political parties, the activist groups, and so forth, and to begin to bring all of these movements into sync with each other, to create a kind of unity, a single-mindedness of purpose, all on the same page, all the same, with the same ideology. It's never been done before in the cause of freedom, always in the cause of of collectivism or tyranny, but mm. never in the cause of freedom. How does someone get involved with that? Well, the first thing, of course, is to learn about it, and that means to come to the website and uh, be prepared to spend a little bit of time uh, reading the material. There's quite a bit of material there, but you'll soon get the idea that, uh, you know, this is different. And so come to the website, and that is freedomforceinternational.org, hmm. O-R-G for organization. 
It's freedomforceinternational.org. And uh, you can see all about us. You can read our creed, uh, the three commandments of freedom. You can read our code of conduct. Uh, you can read about all of the, um, uh, the ways in which we are attempting to build this, uh, this network that I've been describing. You can see um, who our more prominent members are. We have a hall of honor. You'll recognize a lot of those people. And you'll well, see I, I hope you have room. I hope you have room for us on there. In the <laughs> Hall of Honor. Yeah, you if, bet I do. If you and have some pedestals for a bust of Tom Bionic and Doctor <laughs> Future, <laughs> maybe to, no, to, to make it complete. Yes, of course. And, okay. Uh, and of course, you see the flags of all the countries where we have members, and we have members now in over sixty countries. Wow. So this is huge. Well, we we're sort of on the run here because we've been declared uh, terrorists by the state of Missouri. Because we've been supporters of Ron Paul and Chuck Baldwin yeah. on the show. So yeah. uh, we have to be careful who our associations are we with right wanna, now. We wouldn't want to sully your, your organization <laughs> with our... But, 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 but seriously, you're providing a clearinghouse for people who are of like mind to find each other, be association, maybe even develop their own uh, individual strategies offline. Exactly. Through, mm-hmm. through a virtual network of people that are of like mind, and they can find out together in their own sphere of influence how they can promote uh, freedom, individuality, self-determination, these, these type of principles. Yeah, you've said it very well. Thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the, the last thing I want to ask you before you get your final website to get your books is, is on getting information. Uh, in your book, you talk about the influence. and you, You've said that in many cases they don't directly control, uh, although I find it very interesting when you have uh, – you know, prominent journalists like Andrea Mitchell actually physically marrying people like Alan Greenspan, uh, and then yeah. you have these other other okay. relationships that are marital and otherwise between media figures and and these very powerful political and financial interests. But uh, we have come to see over and over again in our show that we have a strong distrust for the mainstream media. Uh, in the historic, just from reading history books, in the examples like that you give in your book about how they've sold certain wars, they've sold certain activities, mindsets of the public uh, that have not been in their best interest. Uh, and so we're always searching, in addition to Future Quake itself, for sources of reliable information that is really trustworthy and really expresses reality. Do you have any final suggestions for our listeners on where we can find that kind of information so we can really be aware of what's going on in the world? Well, yes, I'd like to toot our horn on all of those points. Uh, first of all, Freedom Force is a, a place where you'll find all the, we hope, you'll find all of the uh, answers to the really hard and deep questions, the philosophical, ideological issues, the historical issues. Um, we have another site, which is our commercial site, called Reality Zone, realityzone.com. And there are, there are about 100 different books and, and recordings uh, available on so many different aspects of the topics we've touched on today. So that's a commercial site, and that'll keep you busy right there for a long time. What about late breaking news, though? What about new things? You know, uh, our uh, yes. our officials recently said that uh, a, a voice that came across uh, on our shipping lanes in, in the Persian Gulf says, uh, we are coming to blow you up, we're coming to get you with some rubber dinghies that were coming across. And all of our political candidates on the Republican side were ready to go to war with Iran over it, except for Ron Paul, who said, you might want to double-check and see if that's real or not. And then we see a, see a, a disclaimer in the middle of the night that that was a hoax from someone on the uh, shipping channel uh, where everyone was ready to go to war. We have a lot of close calls like that and beyond 
from information that comes straight through our mainstream media that's being processed for late-breaking mm-hmm. news. Where are the places that you rely on to get information to really get the straight story of what's going on as it happens? Well, we have a weekly news service that we keep up to date every oh, day, really? and it's called wow. Un- Unfiltered News. Oh. And, and it's, it's a part of the Reality Zone. If you go to the Reality Zone, then you'll find it, or you can go to Google and just type in Unfiltered News. And um, I did it just the other day, and um, we have three we have three out of the top ten listings. We're even on top of Wikipedia for that one. So really, wow. yeah. Can we but also just, contribute information that we come across with on our absolutely, show? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, uh-huh. We do a good bit of uh, our own work here. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, uh, I had the privilege of of being asked to speak at a United Nations and World Council of Churches conference last year on religion and spirituality that was funded by the UN and World Council of Churches and they're creating a new religion called the Order of the Transfiguration that uh, their slogan is they're creating a new humanity for a new world order and they're actually using the UN funding to teach spirit channeling Mm. uh, contact with the dead and with other apparitions and almost no one knows about this uh, activity yeah it sounds classic doesn't it well I I was we were thinking here about maybe nominating uh, uh, your particular international, Freedom Force International, would be an NGO with the United Nations. But do you think that may be hesitant to adopt you as an <laughs> they may NGO? Not fly, yeah. well, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't rub elbows with those uh, those guys for anything. But um, well, you could get some of that good Federal Reserve money. Uh, <laughs> somebody's backing their checks at least for a little while longer. Uh, actually, I'm glad you're independent. I want to thank you so much for your yeah, time. With us. You were great. You know, you, you, you really, um, and, and I don't mean to express this by your age, uh, because you're, you're certainly not in respect, but, but by your actions, a real patriarch mm-hmm. of uh, so many other people who have woken up and are mm-hmm. aware of what's really going on in the world. Some Christians, some outside that, that bounds, but, but they actually realize to a large extent we've been had, and they're starting to find new associations with people. And, and actually, rather than, than splitting up Americans, it's uniting Americans. I think you can look at the whole Ron Paul movement as a way that you found people that came from very different political backgrounds, Democrat, Republican, others, that found they had common interest in looking out for the best interest of their families, uh, distrust of power structures, and they found a lot of commonality that the two main political parties would not let them uh, discover. So there are some good things that are happening with the American public as well, too. But they've got to happen faster because the forces of darkness never rest. Uh, so in conclusion, can you tell our listeners how they can get your books and videos and keep up with uh, and support your work and anything else we can su- do to support what you're doing? Well, yes. If you're interested in our books and videos, come to our uh, Reality Zone site. That's uh, www.realityzone.com. And you'll find everything there. You'll find the creature from Jekyll Island. Uh, you'll find a lot of videos. And, of course, not just our own works, but mm-hmm. uh, the books and uh, recordings from others as well. Okay. And then of if course. you're ready to roll up your sleeves and get to work and make uh, some changes in the world, that's right. where you come over to freedomforceinternational.org. And listeners, if you do do that, would you tell them that Dr. Future and Tom Bionic sent you? Mm-hmm. Let, let them know you heard. We have a lot of Futurians here who listen, uh, many tens of thousands uh, here in the national area and an equal amount uh, internationally that listen to us uh, that get this, that understand it, and they want to make a difference. And I know they express their thank you to you. A lot of them are big fans of yours and wanted to hear you talk in this kind of framework and context. Do you think you ever might come back for a follow-up visit with us sometime? I'd be delighted to. 
Well, it was a pleasure. We yeah, know how you busy you are, and we know that you've devoted your life to uh, benefit your fellow citizens and, and fellow human beings, and so we don't want to take advantage of that, but we would love to have you back. There's so much we can talk about, and there's so much late-breaking news mm-hmm. that I, that uh, we think you could really put in proper context for us. So uh, we just want to thank you again uh, for spending this time with us uh, this evening, well, and uh, we sure look forward to having you back soon. Yeah. And, and uh, please keep up with futurequake.com when you have a time. And uh, we we will keep fighting our fight here in the little corner of the Mid-South. Okay. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate having a chance to be on your show. Well, God bless you, and thank you again. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Goodbye. 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 All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back here at Future Quake with Dr. Future. And, Tom, let's get out of Babylon Bionic. Amen. Yeah. We got to get out of it. We got to get out of it. And I tell you. That's what the Lord tells us today. I I know. And it's... How, how do we get out of it? Tell me. Well, uh, I think I sort of stumped G. Edward a little bit. You know, that was an interesting. Yeah, there was sort of silence on the line there for a little bit. But I thought that his idea uh, or his his commentary that uh, it was a mindset as much as it was a physical place. You know, sort yeah. of the mindset of apathy and you know I, spending I think, more I, than you make. And, I think we need some creative ideas on how to um, uh, do transactions that don't involve bankers. Yeah. Amongst our own. That's an interesting, or maybe like honest bankers or something. I don't know. Well, let's first find some honest Christian bankers. Yeah. If you are, give us a holler here at Future Quake. Well, it sure would be interesting to start a credit union and, uh, um, you know, maybe like start a credit union mm-hmm. and then use that credit union, the profits, to like fund organizations that were good. Well, maybe we can talk about that in yeah. the future. All this right. might happen. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, what I was suggesting is something more mainstream. To take your extra money to buy extra commodities of things you know you'll use and consume in the future. It doesn't necessarily have to be all food. There can be other things. I, I don't know. Just use your own imagination. 200 you know, pounds of toilet paper. The one, the one thing about it, though, is that even if the if it gets more valuable, you're not going to have capital gains tax if you c- consume it later. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's a way to keep the banker's mitts off of it at risk and also keep Uncle Sam's. Yeah. And now they'll probably go arrest me for having said that, for having an idea. 20 gallon jug of uh, shampoo and or mayonnaise. Yeah. No, I I'm not <laughs> talking about all food, but yeah, you know, there are some things I'm sure we could do. Yeah. Like if you have a good fuel stabilizer, buy a bunch mm. of fuel. There you go. Fuel always be worth something. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. Don't smoke around it. Yeah, we'd have to find a place to put it, you know, maybe bury it in the backyard. Yeah. I tell you, we got to find a place to put uh, Mervin here cuz he's got to tell our listeners how all to right. contact us. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we got to go. All right, it's out of here. Tomorrow is tomorrow's Tremors. Come check it out. We hope you enjoyed G. Edward Griffin. Until then, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Also, bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake.
Welcome to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom, slightly overworked and way too caffeinated, Bionic. <laughs> that may rank up there for one of the longest middle names for you, Tom. Well, I could say it with the, the amount of caffeine that's coursing through my veins. I'm sure I could say it quite a bit faster. Well, you might be like, extra creative today. <laughs> now, that's the reverse. <laughs> hey, ladies and gentlemen, it's great here to be with you at the Future Quake show. Uh, today is Friday, which means it is... Time not to drink so much caffeine. Okay. Well, maybe our listeners should. They're listening to our show. Yeah. It's tomorrow's Tremors, or today's review of the Futures News. Friday is always the day when we cover some of the news events that are really uh, maybe been overlooked, but things that we need to know, particularly the Futurians mm-hmm. in our audience. And I want to thank all of our listeners out there yeah. who have been regular faithful listeners. We hope you enjoyed G. Edward Griffin this week. I sure did. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, his book, his book, like, if you talk to somebody and you feel like the issues that we cover here on the show... Um, if you feel like somebody you're talking to just kind of doesn't get it, I found that oftentimes giving them that book, uh, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, is kind of the way to sort of get them into thinking in, about these sorts of issues that we cover. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 80% right. of them anyway. Well, it, it, what happens is when you're seeing all this evidence that things aren't what they seem, <laughs> that you will find out that uh, there's much more than meets the eye than just that. Yep. Basically, it tells you there's a, there's another world of people calling the shots, mm-hmm. and nothing surprises you anymore. And they're all they're right. all really into eugenics. Uh, yeah, which is eugenics. Describe that for people not familiar with that term. Well, eugenics is actually uh, sort of a quote-unquote pseudoscience, uh, at least by the, pro- the, the people who are into it. Uh, but the basic idea is to get rid of people... In its broadest sense, to get rid of people, any person that's uh, sort of undesirable, bad stock, yeah, like, genetically not pure for the the yes. goals that we have. And at the in the in the widest sense, it's it's like uh, you know you could be poor, or you could mm-hmm. be uh, the wrong ethnic you know, wrong groups ethnic that they, background, yeah. yeah, because it's it's it turns out to be very uh, real racist. It's by definition racist in oh, that yeah. it presumes that some racist or inferior yeah. races are inferior to others. Well, um, yeah. Well, there's a there's you know we talk about that a little bit at the Future Quake Radio. That's right. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Futurequakeradio.blogspot.com. Well, thank you for uh, a a home yeah. of the writing and musings of our own Tom Bionic, mm-hmm. which is another place you need to stop by. Yeah. As well as futurequake.com, mm-hmm. the the mothership. Uh, also, our <laughs> friends at uh, World of Prophecy. Indeed. And uh, but but tell us what you got up there at Future Quake Radio. Well, we got a uh, we got a, a great little post about uh, Timothy Geithner. Okay. You know him. You love him. He owes you money. Mm-hmm. Well, but you mentioned a bunch, ain't bad. <laughs> bunch of people who are famous people in different fields who yeah. are also eugenicists yeah. and are today. Teddy Roosevelt, former president. Woodrow Wilson, Margaret Sanger, uh, who started pr- Planned Parenthood. Uh, Which originally that whole group was organized to try to support yeah, w- the eugenicist mission. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was called the like the, the uh, the eugenics, the eugenics project or something. Yeah, they had eugenics right in the name. Hmm. So, wow. So there you go. And some people today have connections as well. Uh, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, who's the father of modern economic mm-hmm. theory yes. that most people follow today, mm-hmm. uh, also was into that very much. He was very into that. And you know, what's interesting is, you know, he was into the Fabian socialists and stuff, but there ke- seems to be sort of implications that he might have been into some darker, sort of occultic stuff as well. Well, I have, uh, yet, to, I have yet to accurately run he that. He was a homosexual. He was. Yeah. He was a homosexual, so, you know, well, go figure. Uh, anyway, um, one thing I'd like our listeners to um, 
keep in prayer is that I've been in some discussions with an outfit that uh, may consider taking our show on a whole network of uh, stations coast to coast. Mm -hmm. It's in the very early stages. Don't know what's going to come of it. But I would appreciate everybody's prayers that are listening. And uh, also uh, may come a time where I might ask some of you all to uh, contact some of these people. Let them know what you think about the show. Uh, We, uh, (coughs) If you don't mind, uh, some of you folks out there that have sent us emails and said it was okay to read them on the air, Mm -hmm. you know, forward them. I forwarded some of those over to uh, the people over there. So I want to thank you ahead of time for your emails that could make a big difference in the expansion of this show. And uh, I have a new one that came in. We get a bunch of real stirring ones. Can I? There's a real brief one that is just it, came in in the last week. Can I share? Is it from Brother Dave? Um, I see here. I'm I'm not quite sure what you're referring to here. Yes. Um, and I'm just gonna I'm not gonna give his name okay. further or anything because of, of his sensitivity not. of the situation. Yeah. But I just wanted to share this our listeners to just tell you the uh, there's things going on that we don't always think about all the time. And uh, hopefully our show can be of some use to minister to people in unique ways. Here's an email that just came in. It uh, says, uh, Greetings, Dr. Future. I want to personally thank you for posting your show on the Internet. Your shows help educate and connect me to timely issues, even though I'm away from my home culture. I'm a servant of the Savior ministering in a former Soviet region of the world. Having lived eight years in this particular context, not only, not only do I observe from a distance what is happening in the states, I can also feel the coming oppression. I'm amazed wow. that in many right, I'm amazed that in many ways this part of the world is becoming more free where, where he is, uh, while the states is becoming more fascist. Here it is not uncommon for the KGB to observe church services. It is not uncommon for police to stop you just to check documents. It is not uncommon to be discriminated and charge more money for being a foreigner. I only pray that God would use your show to help keep the states free from the tyranny of fascism. Uh, mm-hmm. And he even offers to uh, provide us information in the future on developments in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. So, um, and he says, uh, keep up the good work there in the states and blessings. And so, if you don't mind, uh, I'd like to lead us in a very brief prayer for Brother Dave. That Do you be, mind? Uh, uh, please. Briefly, I just want to thank you, Brother Dave, for being out there and being so faithful. Uh, you you uh, really blessed us with your mm-hmm. email and serving the Lord out on the mission field right now, uh, out there on a, on a frontier battlefield uh, where you, you're way away from supplies and other support of, of, of our or army, the Lord's army here. And I just want to lift you up and pray that uh, you will need, get what you need to support you in every possible way. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, Brother Dave and his family, uh, for where they are serving in a uh, relatively remote area, mm-hmm. uh, far, far away from the creature comforts and the common uh, culture and comfort zone that we have in the United States. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, in the midst of all his uh, ha- uh, hard serving that he's doing there under hard conditions, he's worried about us here, Lord. He's worried about our freedom here in the United States. Uh, I pray that, that, one, that you would protect him and bless his ministry, uh, that you would continue to uh, bring souls uh, that would uh, come to know you because of his ministry, as, as I've seen evidence of so far, and that also that you would answer his uh, prayer uh, to embolden us and to uh, help equip us, Lord, uh, to help us preserve freedoms, to express our religion, and uh, by means of that to be able to spread the kingdom of God, Lord, and be a blessing to other people. Uh, under under these freedoms. So, Lord, we just thank you so much for his testimony witness and just ask that you'd answer our prayers and, and our fellow listeners here uh, mm-hmm. to lift him up and protect him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for obliging me that. 
appreciate that very much. Um, if you'd like to start with a story, I have uh, a little something that was sent in sort of interesting from uh, Paula Martin, one of our uh, mm-hmm. guests that have been on, and then some yeah. regular stories. Okay. Well, nothing's regular on this show, yeah. what am I saying, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. Um, what, what have you got to share with us today? Well, do you want to hear about uh, the world being moved closer to a global currency, or do you want to hear about uh, how uh, highways have been shut down in Taiwan due to butterflies? To the butterflies? Yeah. I guess we better hear about the global currency. Okay. Um, this may relate to the thing that was sent in to me, yeah, so I we'll see. I, I, yeah, I think that's... You may make I me obsolete after all the effort I did to try to compile it into a show. Wait a minute. You Not just, that we'd be coordinated minute, you or just, anything. Yeah, you just said that, you just said that uh, uh, Miss Martin... Well, I had to do some further time. compiling for... Oh. Her, you know, because we fritterate most of our time on Friday. And all right. Got to well. keep it concise. So lay it on us anyway. Okay. I think it beats the butterflies. Yeah, well, this is from uh, the Telegraph there in the U.K. Uh, the world moved closer to a global currency. A single clause in point nineteen of the communique issued by the G20 leaders amount to revolution in, in the global financial order. Are we? Is that the same? We on the yeah, same? keep going. Yeah. All right. We have agreed to support a general SDR allocation, which will inject $250 billion into the world economy and increase global liqu- liquidity, it said. SDRs are special drawing rights, a a synthetic paper currency issued by the International Monetary Fund that has lain dormant for half a century. In effect, the G20 leaders have activated the IMF's power to create money and begin global quantitative easing. In doing so, they are putting a de facto world currency into play. Uh, Yeah, you know, as a side note, uh, the the SDRs, the the special drawing rights, have been on the books of... uh, uh, most central banks now for 20 years, 25 years. Mm, They've been there for a long time. Um, It is outside the control of any sovereign body, uh, these SDRs are now. Okay. Uh, Conspiracy theorists will love it. This is true. It has been a a good summit for the IMF. It's fighting funds for crises to be tripled, tripled overnight to $750 billion. This is real money. Dominique strauss kahn the managing director. <laughs> I like how the guy's name is gone. <laughs> oh, gosh, you can't make this stuff up. Said in February that the world was already in depression and risked a slide into social disorder and military conflict unless political leaders resorted to massive stimulus. He has not won everything he wanted. The spending plan was fudged. While Gordon Brown talked to $5 trillion in global stimulus by 2010, this is mostly made up of packages already underway. But Mr. Strauss-Kahn at least has resources fit for his own task. He will need them. The IMF is already bailing out, get this, is already bailing out Pakistan, Iceland, Latvia, Hungary, Ukraine, Belarus, Serbia, Bosnia, and Romania. Romania. This week, Mexico became the first G20 state to ask for help. Now, from what we've learned before, anytime they do these kind of bailouts, there's strings attached where they maintain some kind of control over the co- the country. Yeah, well, the, which is what our own country now is doing with companies and banks in our own country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they loan you the money and they say it's well, you know, it's usury. It's mm-hmm. it's essentially usury on a global scale. Um, I and you know, it's interesting. I haven't heard much from. I don't know if you recall, Ecuador uh, has said that. Its payments, its payment, payments on a loan similar to this from the IMF was in arrears about a year ago, and they said, "We're not paying it. This is illegal." And uh, mm. I haven't heard anything about it since. No, I haven't either. 
I should look that up. I don't know. Yeah. Um. I just. Well, we'll go with that. You you want to? I tell you what. This is, gives a little bit of Dick Morris's commentary on what you're talking about. The event yeah. that happened, and this was sent in by Paula Martin of. of a guest, a recent guest on our show, mm-hmm. who forwarded this to me, and I have just outlined part of it. She actually transcribed an interview that Dick Morris, who many of you know as a political advisor, first under Clinton, and now he does a, a, a lot of writing, uh, sort of uh, ones and those ins and outs of things. Greta Van Susteren had him on uh, in a few days ago, and uh, she asked him uh, to talk about what happened when Obama went to the G20 meeting in London a few days ago. And... Uh, Here's what he says. He says, Obama's performance at the G20 was a disaster, but it's probably a disaster he likes. Literally from April 2nd of this year, that is today, it's a whole new world of financial regulation, which is, it's, which in, a, in which essentially all of the U.S. regulatory bodies and all U.S. companies are put under international regulation, international supervision. It really amounts to a global economic government. Wow. Okay, this is Dick Morris saying this, not mm-hmm. a Bible prophecy teacher. No, this is. And, uh-huh. who, and just to refresh our memories, who is Dick Morris? You mean the guy that I just explained about a second ago? That guy. Again, he was an advisor to President Clinton. He's one of his closest advisors. Oh, that's advises right. a lot okay. of political candidates. Uh, okay, here's, he continues further. He says, let me read, you from, read to you from the communique, Greta. We agree to a framework of internationally agreed upon high standards. We will set up a financial stability board with a strengthened mandate to extend regulation and oversight to all systematically important financial institutions, instruments, and markets, including hedge funds. All, meaning that they decide anything uh, they decide is important to the system, to endorse and implement tough new principles on paying compensation and to su- su- support sustainable compensation schemes and the corporate so- so social responsibility of all firms. So just to just to make sure that I have this straight, Dick Morris, who was this uh, Washington insider, now believes that uh, uh, and is showing very clearly that uh, you know there's this big global economic government and there's no conspiracy theorist that's right us about no it. rumor no, none nothing. Of this. it's right there out in the open and it's not just in our united states where we've suspected this stuff's going on mm-hmm. it is part of a global scale that's come to the g20 mm-hmm. where now they're saying these governments and officials can latch on to anybody's property they want basically i mean which is what these companies assets are property uh, dick continued he says just when obama is accused of socialism he's essentially creating world economic government that means that the FSB, this newly created board, Financial Stability Board, patterned on the Financial Stability Forum that now exists, headed by an Italian banker, populated largely by European bank executives, will make the decisions on what standards our own Securities and Exchange Commission and Federal Reserve Board should apply to all firms in the United States of any significant size about executive compensation, market activities, and a whole range of issues that used to be under free enterprise reserved for private decision-making. This is an unbelievably radical document. It trivializes everything Obama has done until now. Wow. Uh, and uh, Greta asked him about who, who was on these boards, uh, these mysterious boards. He says, well, it's made up of the central bankers of the G20 states. And this, he has some interesting comments here. Hmm. He says, and one of the ironies about this is that the United States has about 60% of the assets of the G20. Oh, no, I'm sorry, 40% of the assets of the GDP of the entire G20 nations. And yet we have one vote, and Argentina has one vote. But the central bankers make this up. They are essentially a more or less self-perpetuating oligarchy. Nice. 
Okay, they're not really chosen by anybody. I suppose they are appointed by their prime ministers or presidents, but that's a lengthy and arm's length process. And as to whether their rules will be advisory or mandatory will be up to them. Clearly, this communicate indicates that they want agreed upon high standards, which means uniformity, and they presumably will have the power to compel this through their member states. Uh, he says, you know, I've had long experience dealing with the European Union, and this is how they operate. All the focus was on how much there will be in the stimulus package, $1.1 trillion, and did Obama win, did Sarkozy win, and in the meantime, they slipped this in under the radar, which is absolutely creating an international economic union. And Greta says, did anybody oppose, uh, you know, or say, look, at this is a lousy idea. He said, yeah, Obama. This is so unbelievable. Obama was the one pressing for less regulation, more spending, but he had to convince the Europeans. But Obama himself is a socialist. I mean, and he had no problem really with this. This truly creates a global economic system. From now on, don't look to Washington for rulemaking. Look to Brussels. Wow. And uh, just the last few points here. He says, uh, but the point is that the European, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the FSF, Financial Stability Forum, are basically European operations. They are run by Europe. Now, the World Bank is run by the United States. And at Bretton Woods, when they set this up, they sort of said Europe has the IMF and the United States has the World Bank. And what that means really is that the uh, European socialists are going to be making the regulatory rules concerning compensation for all, all systematically important U.S. firms. And uh, if you could oblige me just a few more, a couple sure. more paragraphs. He, he also was on uh, uh, Fox, uh, uh, the morning show with uh, uh, Fox News mm-hmm. uh, with Allison Camerata. And she says, mm-hmm. uh, all right, the G20's just ended and Obama thinks it all went well. Yet you say, Dick, it's a disaster. How so? And he says, well, it effectively has ceded massive areas of American sovereignty to Europe and to the global economic mavens. But in fact, they're mainly Europeans. Let me read you from the communique. He explains about the uh, paying compensation, uh, you know, that's a responsibility of all firms. Mm-hmm. And she says, no, what, what, let me stop you there, Dick, for clarification. In other words, an international body will have some say over how much American CEOs make. And he says, you got it. And it's not just some say. They will effectively set international standards that will be applied to the SEC and Federal Reserve Board uh, and the Commodities Exchange Commission. Each of these agencies will then implement them. So what you're really setting up an international governance over the economy, and not just specifically for certain firms, but all firms. That was all. And another one is to extend regulation and oversight to all systematically important financial institutions, instruments, and markets. By that, they mean too big to fail. So while Obama is, is basically extending national regulation to these bodies, the G20 is putting a layer of regulation over the national regulation, which basically is European regulation. Europe has wanted to do this for two decades. They're basically socialist, and they wanted to control how the United States regulates its industry. But this is literally a massive surrender of sovereignty to an essentially European body. Uh, and right here at the end, she says, so let's dig a little deeper into Financial Stability Board, FSB as we're calling it. You say that uh, they set up something so that all financial institutions that are systematically important, in other words, those banks, hedge funds, uh, that should they fail, or car companies or insurance companies, all companies, and he says, or, or, or God knows what, public relations firms. I mean, whatever is systematically important is one of those phrases that's about as stable as an accordion. Uh, so Alan says, so, but the point is, is that if there would be, uh, it would create a disastrous domino effect, such as AIG, if one of these were to fail. Shouldn't those be better regulated? And he says, yeah, absolutely, by the U.S. government. 
by people appointed by an elected president and confirmed by an elected U.S. Senate, not by a group of central bankers from Europe who outvote the United States 19 to 1 and who put uh, who can put whatever standards they want on this thing. So hmm. that basically, if that doesn't sound prophetic, I don't know what does. I don't believe it. You don't believe it? <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. So um, that you know that event, that G20 event, may have been a, a watershed event, and other historians are not are not grasping yet what was just oh, signed no, over. No, absolutely not. People, people in the know seem to be getting it, but yeah. you know. Hey, can I can I ask you something? I know I read that long story there. Yeah. Get, I want something I'd like to, for you to comment on. Okay. To try yeah. to pick us up a little bit. Yeah. I have a story about uh, more caskets being found. Can I? Oh yeah, that's a happy one. Can I read something about that real quick since our time is Yay, short? Yay! Big happiness. Everything's okay. Everything's happy on the future quake. You know, that makes us want to play I'm Happy, our old song. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, okay, this is uh, from the Jones Report. It says, plastic coffin liners being delivered by the truckloads. Uh, and a listener sent in photos of thousands of pla- plastic coffin liners awaiting pickup for truck delivery somewhere in Alabama. Uh, this unsettling sight may well correspond with concerned reports of mass graves being prepared at National Memorial Cemetery in Phoenix, Arizona. And at the Houston National Cemetery, as well as numerous other reports. You know, it's interesting. We're not involved in any major war right now. Mm-hmm. Why should they be preparing all these graves? Just in uh, case. Just in you case. Know, just in case. Well, D.H. Williams reported in February on an Indiana County municipal uh, official uh, who had received detailed requests from FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security in regards to locations for mass graves, preparations for regional refugees, uh, preparations for the economic collapse and budget cuts under a GM collapse, as well as the locations of major installations, emergency assets, and more. Uh, this is from an Indiana County Municipal official, request from FEMA. The official heard of the video below says that he became concerned about the intentions of the FEMA and DHS officials, whose scenarios apparently included a potential bird flu outbreak uh, alongside fires, floods, and earthquakes. Uh, while it is generally true that cemeteries undergo routine expansions and utilize pre-made burial sites, concerns have grown over FEMA preparations for large numbers of deaths under various crises. What the heck is FEMA doing digging graves? What? <laughs> Where is I, that in their charter? I, well, let me just finish the last paragraph here. Uh, we have also received reports about questionnaires, such as uh, a one uh, that, that they had linked here from the New York State Division of Cemeteries issued in 2007, which solicited details about the capability of individual cemeteries to deal with mass fatality or pandemic situations. Should a prolonged mass fatality disaster or pandemic flu occur in your community, would your cemetery be able to provide temporary or permanent internment space for a significant number of disaster flu deaths in addition to your current burial services? Uh, the state of Colorado has ex- issued an executive order in 2000 asserting its authority to bury victims in mass graves or cremate bodies under emergency conditions. And Jim Erickson of the Rocky Mountain News reported in 2003 that the state of Colorado would seize antibiotics, cremate disease-ridden corpses, and under extreme circumstances, dig mass graves under executive orders drafted for use in the event of a bioterrorism attack. Uh, and then they have a photo on here of a half a million plastic coffin liners spotted in July 2008 waiting pickup outside Atlanta, Georgia for unknown distribution. Well, we already know the um, we already know that those coffin liners 
exists. There's been tons of videos of that stuff about that. Well, and that's just conspiracy theorists. Oh, conspiracy right. talk. I'm sure there's a good use there's, there's for that. There's no, you're being crazy. There's Maybe no they're personal problems. recreational boats that are being designed there you for people go. to float down the river. They're, yeah, it's like a tubing thing. So, yeah, they're all going to get in your, it's like it's a little, little kayak thing you yeah. just lay in. Yeah, it's, it's a stealth way that we're going to invade Argentina. We're going to put all of our men in these coffins and then seal them. And then oh, Argentina, I get it. No, I don't get it. I don't either. I, that's that's the whole point. Like, what is FEMA doing? And what is FEMA doing? Digging graves? What is What are they doing? Why do we have half a million coffins? What are they doing with all these coffins in Alabama and Atlanta? Well, there's only uh, one person who has the answers. And that's Merv? That's Merv. Merv needs to come in and tell you all how you can contact us here at Future Quake. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay. I don't know where the time goes. The uh, same place that all those conspiracies go. Thanks for letting me do the coffin story. No, that's cool. That's a good one. I'd feel sad if we hadn't gotten it in. I'm glad you did it. Um, we, we don't know what any of this is about. We just want you to hear about it so yep. you can keep your ear to the ground and keep your head up pointed to the skies, uh, yep. looking for our Lord and Savior's return. Mm-hmm. Prepare your hearts. Be ready. Share the gospel with others. And until Monday, if the Lord tarries, we hope your future is very bright. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake.